This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. They used to call space the final frontier. At least that's what Captain Kirk called it. Uh, I've come to view space as the next frontier. But these days, as space becomes more and more seemingly an answer to some of the problems that we're facing on this planet, whether we're talking about the mining of raw materials that we need for manufacturing high-tech goods here on Earth, whether we're talking about uh, an exit ramp if uh, we blow each other up Planet of the Apes style or succumb to climate change or whatever the case may be, it seems that it's not a question of if we're going to continue space exploration, which was very uncertain just 20 years ago, but how and when. So I've come to view space not as the final frontier or the next frontier, but I've come to view outer space and the world of the stars as the next logical step. And that's why I've always been really grateful that Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, has been so willing to be generous with his time and his wisdom on the subject of space. If you're new to the show, uh, Dr. Sky is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. He's also now hosting a podcast, which you can listen to at wabcradio.com. And there's some great stuff on there. Just go to wabcradio.com slash drsky. Steve Cates, it is great to talk with you again, my friend. Well, good morning, Frank. Always a pleasure to be back on the other side of midnight, and thank you for having me. What a jam-packed show this should be, because the things we'll be talking about that I know the listeners just love. Absolutely. Now, when um, our last couple of conversations have focused on the possibility of an asteroid coming to Earth and doing to us what, uh, what would happen to the dinosaurs, last time we were here, we were talking about the DART mission and when we would know if the DART mission to divert this asteroid was successful or not. Looks like the results are in, and it looks like NASA did a pretty good job on this one. Well, absolutely, Frank, and it's amazing that you can pinpoint a spacecraft that weighs maybe 1,300 pounds and hit it, a little object, well, not that little, 500 and some 20 feet in diameter. It's the second of the binary asteroids of a system, a little tiny object called Didymon or Didymus, and the object, I hope everybody within this listening audience got a chance to see the video. You see the spacecraft with its amazing camera as it moves in the DART spacecraft, with its Draco camera, and lo and behold, you see two objects. The smaller one is the impact target, and within, what, 30 seconds as they speed up the uh, framing rate there, you get to see this little rubble pile get hit. But what's more interesting is the residual material that's seen blasted off the surface of the little Diddy Moon, and the ground-based telescopes have actually imaged that, Frank, and it's quite amazing. So I can't say for sure that we know the orbital change of that little Diddy Moon But it's a step in the right direction. But God help us if it's an asteroid of the size of the original extinctor, anywhere from five to seven miles, 
will kind of need a bigger impactor, don't you think? Absolutely. Uh, so what is the latest with the DART mission? What's the next step? I know the initial DART uh, asteroid diversion was sort of a test run, and that asteroid right. was not really a threat uh, to this planet. Where do we go from here? Well, it's to actually do some more serious imaging from the little tiny spacecraft that was following this. And it's also for the astronomers to look at the orbital characteristics of these two objects. They know the frame rate, meaning the rotation rate of both of these asteroids. But they're going to see if that means anything to do with the change in the orbit of the little Didymones. We probably won't officially know. And this goes out there because this could be a week, this could be a month or more, to know if the impactor actually did do some justice to moving the asteroid. But again, let's not hope, you know, let's not get too excited too early here because I think what people need to hear, and it's great that we have shows like what you're doing here, to tell people that this is a right, like you mentioned, this is an experimental thing. This is phase one. So the simple answer is we need a little more time, Frank, to understand the dynamics of what happened. But it looks very positive. It's like, as I described many times before, it's like taking a rifle bullet fired from New York City, let's say, and hit your target bullseye in some place like Los Angeles. That totally, in that same analogy, I think that's quite amazing just on that feat alone, don't you? Oh, no doubt about it. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. We're talking space for the hour. If you have questions about space, we have uh, on call the guy that can answer it, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. There's been a lot of news coverage of what's happening in space lately, and I'm all for that. I'm all for exploring and explaining what's going on within the space. Space program, but sometimes because I think this level of space coverage is relatively new, at least in recent history, a lot of folks may not understand some of the uh, some of the terms that get thrown around and why some of this is so significant. So I always try to think of the things that I'd want to know. But if you have questions or if there's something that you don't understand that you've seen in the news, give us a call eight hundred eight four eight ninety two. 22. So, Steve, you mentioned the DART mission and the efforts there to divert the asteroid. What is the Lucy mission as it relates to these Trojan asteroids? Well, it's interesting, Frank. We live in a very impressive times, interesting times. There are many space probes that are out in space, but this one, known as Lucy, is actually named after a fossil or a partial human fossil that was unearthed in Ethiopia back in the early 1970s. And also, it was named as part the of the song, song right? The, right, yeah. the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So here's a spacecraft launch about a year ago that really didn't get, in my opinion, a whole heck of a lot of coverage. What's its purpose? It's on a long 12-year mission to examine some of the earliest of asteroids in the creation of the solar system, meaning about four and a half billion years ago, that kind of hang out. That's an appropriate term around the giant planet Jupiter, which, by the way, as we talk later in the program, to tell people what they can actually see with these great planets like Jupiter. But on either side of Jupiter, either side, 60 degrees forward, 60 degrees back, they call these these Lagrange points. Same kind of thing with the James Webb Telescope was placed into a location in what we call a safe Lagrange area, and for reasons that we could go into ad infinitum. But, But this particular spacecraft, it's on this mission to examine these original creation particles of the solar system. They're rather large asteroids. But the interesting thing is the Lucy Space Mission, the spacecraft, has to do a number of these Earth-assisted returns. They're called gravity assists. And lo and behold, we happened to have one over the weekend, and I got excited, so many of my friends in the astronomy community, because we're hearing all chatter 
that, oh, yeah, you'll be able to see Lucy as it goes across the sky. Well, don't get too excited, Steve, because here's the truth about it, and that's what we report. The Lucy spacecraft made a close approach of the Earth over Australia by only some 210 miles on purpose as the gravity energy of that, you know, the Earth encounter pushes it back into space. So observers in Australia got to see, imagine this, Frank, going outside, looking into a clear sky, and you'd see the thing slowly, if not rapidly, moving across your sky with the naked eye. The West Coast, where I am here in Phoenix, we had an opportunity, albeit cloud cover and the late monsoon destroyed our chances. But the interesting thing, it's going to be doing a number of these Earth-assisted encounters as it zips along and goes out, a very difficult maneuver. It's going to keep going back and forth, coming around the Earth, and it's to explore. It's a solar-powered spacecraft. Thing weighs about 3,400 pounds, a little much more, a little bit more weight, I should say, than the DART mission. But I'm finding this fascinating, Frank, and I'm sure the listeners are, that we have such amazing technology now. And some people argue that we should be putting most of our money, if not all of it. I probably don't agree totally here, but the statement is this that we should be putting into more robotic spacecraft because you simply get more bang for the buck on these you know, robotic unmanned craft than you mm. do on the manned craft. Mm. So that's another conversation. But we're hearing a lot about Lucy in years to come. But can you imagine seeing that going across the sky going, wow, they even controlled it so that it comes back a year later. <laughs> it's going to go out to Jupiter, do a little observing of satellites, meaning the asteroids, come back again. And this is so amazing because there's many more spacecraft in the pipeline. Great technology. What is the counter-argument to that? Instead of doubling down on investment in robot, robotic-powered space travel and spacecraft, what is the argument in terms of investing in man, manned space missions? Well, obviously, the human, obviously going to, a, say, of the moon, the return to the moon, we simply can do many more things dexterity-wise until they can create some androgynous machine that I think Elon Musk is even working on these robots. But right now, you know, there, there's a good argument, and I hope that we're giving a good presentation on this. And, of course, we need that because you can do so much more. You know, you can actually scout out areas on the surface of the moon. There's maybe longer durations that you can be out on the surface of the moon with a specific mission. And, of course, if something fails on the robotic spacecraft, Who's there to replace the part? Mm. But the Russians tried this, Frank. This is interesting. They made many attempts to beat us to the moon during even the Apollo 11 mission with their lunar space probes. Sadly for them, they never got to the moon with a lunar probe before the Apollo 11. Actually, during the time of Apollo 11, one supposedly crash-landed. They were trying to beat us, scoop up some rocks and bring them back and say, aha, you know, we got <laughs> the lunar samples before you. But I think there's a good case. Uh, I'm saying it mildly. Of course, uh, I'm so proud to hear about the stories of humankind and exploration. But if you look at it, there are certain things that we cannot do. And the simple answer would be this. Robotic spacecraft, now on the other side of the coin, can do so much more without having to worry about radiation sickness, oxygen supplies, and all that. They are machines. And in many cases, they can cost a lot less than sending a fleet of humans. 800-848-9222, here with Dr. Sky for the hour. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Jay in Cincinnati. Hello, Jay. Jay? Uh, Good morning, Jay. Went, yeah, how you doing, Dr. Sky? Good, uh, sir. How are kids, you? We went downtown on a, uh, a school bus tour to, to look at the moon rocks that they had just recently brought back from the moon. Mm -hmm. Right. And did, did they prove from those samples that the Earth, 
the moon was actually part of Earth that broke away and got caught in its orbit? I think that no. was a theory. It was a theory, and that's so many. And let me say this, Jay. That's a great question because so many people believe that the moon was originated by a berthing out of, say, the Pacific Ocean. But the, the lunar rocks, I can say this. There are some different type of chemical compositions in those rocks that are basically not so prevalent here on the Earth. So the latest theory, and I think astronomers are pretty accurate on this, is that the moon was probably a captured object over the course of billions of years. Or it might have been even a separated object from a larger planet that we don't have today that then coalesced into smaller ones. So the moon rocks, of course, were not evidence that, of course, they came from the Earth. It's something different. Thank you, Jay. 800-848-9222. Speaking of the moon, Steve, what is the latest on the uh, Artemis One moon rocket launch? I know there was some fits and starts, some delays. Where are we with that at this point? Well, Frank, this is interesting. Uh, NASA just released another timetable, and they're saying that the next launch date, unless they change it again, is scheduled for November the 14th, and that's the latest information that I have. Why the delay? Well, there's so many issues there. They had overpressuring and hoses with you know, hydrogen leaks, things of that to nature. The RS-25 rocket engines, and not, and not to knock NASA on this, they're using engines that were then revamped, and my word is very you know, cautious here and very mild. They were revamped engines called RS-25s that power this big Artemis rocket. You know, they're good engines. They do work. But interestingly enough, in the simplest way, Frank, this is going to take place hopefully by November the 14th. And the mission is very interesting. And for listeners that didn't hear us talking about this over the last few months, it's an unmanned mission. There's three of these dummies on board that are going to be testing out radiation suits, uh, various pressure suits, all new things in, in the environment of space. Because the goal is rather soon after this Artemis, which is about a 40-day mission. See, it's not just a three-day or four-day outward mission to the moon and back, like, let's say, Apollo 8 when it orbited the moon, this is going to take a very high orbit called a retrograde orbit around the moon, purposeful, and its, its reason for that is it's going to be testing out the systems on the Orion spacecraft. And if you make a quick comparison, the Apollo capsule, relatively small, you know, many of the Apollo astronauts that I've talked to stated that they could actually get up, change their clothes, and barely stand straight up if they got up of their couches, you know, the three couches that were there. This is a much larger vehicle, but let's be careful how we tell larger. It's larger, but not all that big. So Artemis hopefully gets off the ground. The eight and a half million pounds of thrust is what people want to see to launch this big payload onto the moon. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Joe in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, hi, Steve. A couple of quick questions. One is, is uh, yeah, when you're talking about radio bursts, coming from Jupiter, is that something like radio waves? What do they mean by that? And then my second question is, when you send a probe, say, to the outer solar system, uh, Saturn takes 26, 27 years to, to go around the sun. How does that affect aiming the probe? Very good questions. Let's begin with the Jupiter radio signals. It's interesting. I don't know the exact frequency, Joe, but People can actually listen. I've done this before. And again, I'm not going to guess if I'm not sure, but on your shortwave radio bands, people regularly listen to the atmospheric uh, electronic you know, effect that's coming off of Jupiter. Why? Because it has its own big ionosphere, meaning when it gets hit by the you know, solar wind, the planet Jupiter is sending out all these radio signals. They can be heard 
the amateur radio community knows so much about this. But the launch dates, you bring up a good point, Joe, that the, the characteristics of launching a spacecraft, everything's done ahead of time. So since Saturn goes around the sun, like you mentioned, once in 29 years, any of the probes that we're sending, we want to send them at a time when we know by the time they get there that the shortest distance possible. So if you think of aircraft, when a lot of these big you know, aircraft fly, let's say, from Los Angeles, New York, around to different places around the world, they take a polar route. And many people look on the map, Joe, and say, wow, that's an odd way to go. It looks like a big curve. Well, this is the same thing with spacecraft. You want to make sure that you launch that spacecraft at a certain time when the planetary object takes the least amount of mileage, if you want to call it that. And don't forget, that was really heavily emphasized when we did Mars probes, as we do in the future. You want to make it the shortest line distance possible. 800-848-9222. Johnny is in Maryland listening on WCBM. Hello, Johnny. How are y'all doing? Doing great. Good Johnny, good morning. I was reading an article today, and it was talking about black holes. And all the information I've had up to this point on black holes is the gravitational pull swallows everything in, and nothing comes out. Well, the article I was reading was talking about how it swallowed up a star like three years ago. They were following this black hole. And then all of a sudden, the remnants, they believe, of the star three years later burnt back out. Now, does that change everything we know or think we know about black holes? All I can say, Johnny, these are great questions that go into relativistic astrophysics and the fancy term of quantum physics. I can tell you what I know. Inside the Milky Way galaxy, there's a supermassive black hole called Sagittarius A star. That's what it is, like an asterisk after the A. This is interesting. It actually eats stars. And that's crazy, Frank, too. Imagine that. A black hole, which nothing can come out. All the forces, gravity, mm-hmm. electromagnetic radiation, everything gets pulled into this thing. It's I have like not a heard giant it. Monster. <laughs> it is. It's a it's gig- it's horrible to even think about. And I say horrible because Maybe you didn't hear this, Johnny, and hope you'll listen to this show uh, continuously here. But in this edition, I can share with you that if you got close to a black hole, and I'm not talking within miles, I'm talking at a great distance in space, you and I and Frank would be spaghettified. You know, I like right. my pasta, so why, too. So but why here's all of a sudden is stuff spewing back out of the black hole? Well, this is an interesting thing. Here we go. And I know we don't have a lot of time for this, but this is fascinating, Frank. What Johnny's bringing up. Stephen Hawking said a long time ago before he passed, now don't laugh, folks, that black holes have hair. Now, not in the traditional sense that you have it on your head, but black holes leak. And black holes leak, and they also can disappear and dissipate. So the interesting thing you're talking about, I can't tell you of anything that I know from talking and reading and doing surveys and interviews that I can tell Frank, you, or anybody listening, Johnny, that anything's come out of a black hole officially, but the theoretical thing is that they leak. But imagine that well, have power. You seen, have you read the articles that I read today? I have not read those specifics. I have not read those specifics. We'll do our homework on that one, Johnny, and uh, the next no, time Johnny, Steve's yeah. with us, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll uh, review the, the latest on black holes. Thanks, Johnny. That's awesome. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your questions in just a moment. Also, some fascinating images coming out of the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, they're very attractive, very pretty, almost look like something that could be in some sort of a museum. But why do they matter? We're going to get into that. We're going to get into the weather and 
Don't look now, but Tom Cruise may be headed to space, not in a William Shatner sense, but in a very Mission Impossible sense. We'll get into that and a whole lot more with Dr. Sky, and we'll take your questions, 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, uh, joined for the hour by my friend Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space, and he has now officially joined the family at WABC Radio. You can check out his podcasts and get some more information about what he's up to at wabcradio.com slash Dr. Sky. That's wabcradio.com slash Dr. Sky. And uh, I'm hoping uh, that is the very beginning of uh, his involvement with WABC. Uh, Steve, just so folks know, what kind of things will they be hearing in these podcasts that you can that you they can download at wabcradio.com? Slash Dr. Sky. Well, thanks for asking. I mean, the Dr. Sky experience is something we came up with because a lot of times people don't know this, and I don't know, Frank, if you even know this. Many years I did a radio show here in Arizona as I continue to do one out here also that's been called the Dr. Sky Show. But I've done one called A Call to Rights, which is about American exceptionalism and the different people that we get to interview you know, military veterans and such. So the whole Dr. Sky experience will be a combination of great interviews from the guests that we have from the worlds of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, cutting-edge things. And we're just starting, so there's only a couple up there now. But there's a couple up there, and one of them is Don Isles. And who's he? He was the gentleman back in the 1960s that actually did the simulation software or the landing software for the Apollo 11 and all the other Apollos to the surface of the moon. So there's a nice 45-minute or so interview there with him. And many more to come. So we're excited to be part Terrific. of the WABC family. And i got to thank John Katsimatidis for his involvement. In Ab- absolutely. And uh, I heard you on the radio Sunday on John Katsimatidis on the, his nationally syndicated show, The Cats Roundtable. And you actually were talking about the fact that Tom Cruise, one of the biggest movie stars of all time, he actually may be shooting a portion of an upcoming one of his films in space? What's the story here? Well, this is interesting. I mean, this is not official official, but according to, you know, the publicists and people that are with Universal Filmed Entertainment, they put out a press release saying that the goal is to do this space movie. I don't know if it's going to be a Mission Impossible. Obviously, if people haven't seen, you know, Tom Cruise Maverick, I thought it was well done from our aviation friends and what we do in the aviation world. But what might happen here is it'd be the first civilian 
to go up out into space as a space walk. And that's even more phenomenal because if you think back about this, I had to do some research on this. And what I find out, Frank, is that since 1998, there have been some 253 spacewalks on the ISS, but they've all been, what, with professional astronauts. What's the difference? Well, they say that for each hour that you do a spacewalk, scientists, meaning the, the astronauts and cosmonauts, I'm sure, from the Russian side, they endure about a seven-hour time period in what's called a neutral buoyancy tank. And that's that big pool in Texas that they have to go in, really, with their full space gear on, in the water, underwater, with a lot of people that are in also scuba-type gear, you know, gear to be safe in case something happens. But that's the best simulation we can get on the Earth. So that's interesting. Imagine the training he has to go through that. But if you look back into historical stuff in the space world, the very first spacewalk happened in 1965. Russian cosmonaut Alexei Leonov beat the Americans by a few months. The first American to walk in space goes back to June 3rd, 1965. And that was Ed White. But it's a very sad story with Ed White because he, along with two other American heroes, perished in the Apollo 1 fire. But the walk that Ed White had, he basically said it was a New York Daily News headline. It says, walking is fun out in space. And he didn't want to come back in. But imagine that if uh, we find out that Tom Cruise does something like that. But it's not going to just be Tom Cruise that goes up. Imagine the lucky people that are the cinematographers, the producers. But you can't take that many people up. But I'm going to put our names in, Frank, to see if maybe they'll let us do something. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, count me in. 800-848-9222. Don is in Long Beach. Hello there, Don. Hi, Frank. Hi, Dr. Sky. Uh, I was morning, just wondering, Don. has the James, good morning. Um, has the, um, James Webb Telescope done anything to change the Big Bang Theory uh, as far as the origins of the universe? Well, it's a wonderful question, Don. The answer right now is not so, because they're still looking to find out how far this can peer into the early creation. And if we look again, I may sound repetitive, but if people haven't heard this, 13.77 billion years ago, wow, that's when we believe that single point dot expanded. But the James Webb is pushing so far back, and I believe this to be fairly accurate, it's probably at the point maybe of 500 million years Mm peering into that time period almost to the very end. But I don't know if we'll ever get to the end, Don, but it's it's amazing. And I know Frank was alluding to something, right, Frank, about these new images. Yeah, uh, uh, one, yeah. one of the things that's gotten a lot of news just in the last few hours is this new image that was captured by the James Webb telescope, uh, which gives a new glimpse at what they call the Pillars of Creation, which is an area 6,500 light years away that was made famous by a Hubble telescope image in the 1990s. What exactly are we looking at here? It looks great, but what exactly is this? Well, you're looking at the protostar creation. I mean, inside all these nebulae, and again, all this gas and dust that's out there in space. Remember, the number one element in space is hydrogen. Obviously, it's a fuel. Obviously, rockets are using it. Obviously, the Artemis One is using it in a different rarefied form, liquid hydrogen. But out in space, what you're seeing in these pillars of light, you know, the whole creation, is these vast columns of material in which stars actually coalesce out of. Now, I know people can't see it, but the radio is the mind's eye. But when you look at the image, one of those pillars is literally light years across. So if, Frank, you were on one side of the pillar and I was on the other, even with our sophisticated radios and all kinds of transmission, 
even on the speed of light, it would still take us, what, years just to communicate just from one end of the pillar to the other. But what's inside that, folks, and Don, if you're still there, this is really fascinating. We're seeing the creation of stars. And that was the hardest thing, Frank, that I ever tried to understand in school, and I still don't really get it. I was told by professors, well, here's what happened, Steve. Over the course of billions of years, this dust particle starts spinning, and gravity forces pressure, and that heats up, and it starts a nuclear cycle called fusion. Frank, doesn't it sound like something's missing? <laughs> it seems so, so simple, but that's what's happening inside these pillars. There's stars that are actually being birthed, so it's a constant thing. You're looking at some things that are just so amazing. The eye of the James Webb is just amazing mm. and more to come. That's for sure. 800-848-9222. Lou is on Long Island. Hello, Lou. Yes, good morning. I'd like to ask with uh, the current propulsion technology, how long would it take astronauts to get to Mars? And what are they thinking of to uh, increase that, uh, well, move ahead technologically? Lou, you bring up an amazing question here. With chemical rockets right now, sad to say, the mission that you and I and Frank would be taking and other listeners, if we could get maybe 40 or 50 people on board one of Elon Musk's you know, starships, it would still take us about nine months with chemical rockets. So what they're thinking of doing, and there's a little spacecraft up there, Lou, that's actually called the X-37B. It's like a mini shuttle, and some people say it's a spy plane or a spy craft. It's a spy, you know, space plane. It may be. But it's testing out some new technology called xenon propulsion. It's more high-tech. It's not the basic use of chemical rockets. It's using photon energy that's coming out, keeping it simple, that just pushes something. And if you ever remember in school, I know, Frank, I remember this, and maybe you did, Lou. I, go, I grew up in the 60s. I remember this bulb that they had in a classroom, and it had a little thing inside it would spin if you held it near the light. That's the same simple concept I'm talking about, propelling something by light energy, but in a little more high-powered version. So that would probably get us there quicker. But the problematic thing, guys, is this. It's really the endurance of how you would even survive, because we're finding out that the mm. cancer rate in going to space is so horrible in, in so many ways because of all the radiation that's coming through. We have to prepare for this mentally, physically, and almost emulate what they did when they went to Antarctica, you know, like the Endeavor craft when they went and got lost and their ship sank. You need the right mindset to be able to endure outside this environment meaning on the surface of Mars, but it would take nine months by chemical rockets today. Wow. Uh, 800-848-9222. I had no idea that the uh, the rate of cancer was that that high for people that go to space. I mean, it makes sense when you think of all the radiation and yeah. other elements that they're exposed to, but I, I guess I just didn't realize that. Well, Frank, this is very interesting, too, and I'm reading this stuff over the course of about a month here. I'm reading a very interesting book about SpaceX it's titled Starship to Mars, the first 20 years. And why am I reading it? Because I want to make sure that I have the cutting-edge information to understand the backstory on a lot of this stuff. But here it is. They're saying that when astronauts return from ISS, they're not permitted to drive for three weeks or so because what it does to the body. And if you look at this whole thing on a more high level, as we're talking about, I'm, I'm talking about this, if you expose 100 people, which is maybe the capacity of a SpaceX Starship, the amount of radiation that Mars astronaut would be exposed to it says here, and I, this is a sad number, 61 of them could be diagnosed with cancer over time as they make these journeys to the planets because we have not only 
the radiation coming through from the sun and particles. But we also have this new thing, which is gamma ray radiation and things of that nature, which are very powerful. And not, not to get way off subject, but an even more amazing you know, breaking news story here on WABC would be this. On October 9th, astronomers detected the most powerful ever gamma ray burst. Get a load of this, 2.4 billion light years away. And what's so unusual about this burst? It actually induced a current into the Earth. Now, that's spooky because imagine something that powerful. What would you do? The Earth has an atmosphere, and we didn't find ourselves, you know, getting sick. But out in clear space, that could be a problem with mm. these amazing things from billions of light years away. No, that's for sure. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. Uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, is here. If you have questions, give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. talking about Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. This, of course, is across the universe. We are exploring everything happening in the universe with the guy that knows a good, good deal of it, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, you can hear his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience, by going to wabcradio.com slash drsky. And if you want to check out the Dr. Sky blog, there's some great content at ktar.com as well. Steve, uh, you've caused me, in the course of doing these segments, to purchase a new set of binoculars and to oh, right. and to be a little bit more eagle-eyed when I look up at the night sky and I see the moon or the stars doing something yes. interesting. Anything happening in the sky, in the northeast certainly, but really anywhere in the country, that people can look forward to seeing in the next few weeks? Well, Frank, that would be a two-hour or three-hour show, but the encapsulated <laughs> version is this. Right this week, and a matter of fact, another day from now, actually, people can start looking into the eastern sky, wherever you're hearing the WABC signal and the radio stations on that are playing this. If you look to the east after midnight, the constellation of Orion rises. And it's easy to see the constellation if you have clear skies. Even in cities, you can see it. The upper left star in the armpit has got the funny name. It's called Betelgeuse. That's the region where the Orionid meteor shower begins and actually, you know, peaks. And it'll peak as we go from Thursday morning into Friday morning. And if you look there, you may get to see, oh, 5, 10, 20 meteors an hour, depending on how dark your skies are. The moon will be a thin, waning crescent, so it shouldn't interfere totally like a full moon would wash it out. So this is interesting because all that debris is from Halley's Comet. 
So if you, like many, didn't get to see it in 1986, I remember we did something up in a place called High Point, New Jersey back then. And no kidding, Frank, we had 5,000 people show up. They came in buses. They came in cars. They walked. Motorcycles. I don't even know if horse-drawn carriages were there. But we showed them this little smudge, and they went, oh, that's Haley's. Well, it's not going to come back till 2061. So I don't know about you, but I'll be a little too old. But if you look there, you're all seeing debris from Haley's. That's amazing. But with those binoculars, Frank, that you have, you look into the east high in the sky. That big right up white object is Jupiter, the goal of the Lucy spacecraft, this monster planet. If you look in binoculars and hold them real steady, you'll see these little dots next to it. Those are the moons, basic four moons. There's many more. Saturn to the right, that's in the sky. But get a load of this. The big event next month is the early morning hours of November 8th. How about this? A total lunar eclipse never happened before on Election Day. And that's going to be visible for people all throughout the listening area. The East Coast, you'll get to see it very early in the morning. But here in the you know in the West in the Pacific time zone, you'll get to see it a little earlier, because remember that daylight saving time thing comes in. I think that's Sunday before, and I know what in California they're protesting that they want to go on permanent daylight saving time, and the nation I think the Senate what approved some bill to say that they're going to try to keep daylight saving time, but that's a controversy. But there's so many things to see, Frank, in our sky. Meteor showers number one, planets visibility, spacecraft. If you just go to the heavens dash above dot com site we'll link that at our podcast section and by the way on the wabc podcast we'll be doing sky reports every week so people can hear we'll have those up in a few days the current events that maybe the show we don't have the time to go into maybe but just as purposeful to get people to follow and look up great so there actually is going to be a lunar eclipse on election day that's correct in the early morning hours of november 8th yes indeed The first time that we've had a total lunar eclipse on Election Day. I don't know what that means from the astrological world or others, but we're looking at this moon that will be going into the deep part of the Earth's umbra. The second one, we had one we talked about it earlier, that was May the 15th for us in the West Coast and all across America. And they're kind of frequent now. We get get these maybe one or two a year, but there'll be a little gap. But that's an interesting thing, don't you think? Absolutely. There's a a metaphor in there somewhere about even the moon hiding when the politicians come out. Uh, 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frankie. Dr. Sky, the only doctor that you don't have to worry about paying the bill at the end. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't take Medicare or whatever. Thank you. you I got two questions for you, doctor. Yes, sir. Number one, that autumn is two. This is only my opinion. But it seems that it's plagued with problems after problems after problems. To me, it, yes. it's like a bottomless pit. Do you think we should outsource it maybe to the Chinese? No, I wouldn't do that. Not because I don't like the Chinese per se, but I would say this. Here's the problem. Many people are talking about this, and I don't have a hand on this. When I don't know something, I'll be honest. And when I do, I'll continue to talk about it. But, Neil, there has been a lot of changes at NASA, good or bad. I mean, I'm not the one who works there. I talk to a lot of people there, but to really be professional here, but honest, the problem is they've got this rocket that the Congress approved the fuel on, and I'm sure if we asked Elon Musk to sit down in conversation, I bet you he, and I'm serious about this, he's made mistakes too, but I think, Neil, he would probably be able to fix this baby, get it flying, and you got to, you know, tip our heads to all the hardworking people that have been at NASA. You know, they're working with used engines that have been, what do you call it? Those engines have been reestablished. Mm. 
They've been refurbished is the right word. Sorry, I was thinking of something else. But, Neil, it's interesting. I'm hoping to see us get this rocket off the ground. But I do think if there was a contest, and there probably really is in a subtle way between SpaceX and, and NASA, I think what? Uh, what? What do you think, Neil? Don't you think that uh, SpaceX would probably have solved these problems a long time ago? Uh, you know, you don't bet against Elon Musk. Am I right? 800-848-9222. Keith is in Cincinnati. Hello, Keith. Hi. How are you doing, guys? Good. Good morning. Good, Keith. Thank you. Okay, uh, I got to explain this to people because this went up under the radar screen a couple weeks ago. Uh, mm -hmm. NASA announced that uh, it's going to send a craft in outer space to study the object that came in our solar system a couple years yes. ago, a Muamua, mm -hmm. yes. and that it would be catching up to a Muamua around the uh, area of Neptune, okay? Mm -hmm. But the amazing thing about the announcement that just caused me almost to fall out of my chair when it happened is they said that the craft would have a gravity well, gravity well engine propulsion system. Mm -hmm. I about fell out of my couch. How long have they been working on this secret technology? I don't know that answer, but I can tell you this much. Let's talk about Oumuamua. This is even more interesting. I mean, this secret technology that maybe you're talking about here, it goes along with the xenon propulsion that I'm talking about that could be on the space plane, the X-37 and others. But this is really interesting. You kind of hit a good nerve with me on this one, Keith, because Oumuamua, it's named after the Hawaiian god, or the, the term is meaning scout, but a good friend of mine discovered it. It's Dr. Robert Warrick, who's out there in Hawaii. And he discovered this object just to give everybody a better understanding of it. It's the first interstellar object that we've ever detected. In other words, asteroids are here in the solar system. They're part of our sun gravity. This came from another star system, maybe Vega. And the simple truth is it's shaped like a pancake, we believe. It's got low reflectivity, meaning red or, or dark brown or something like that. And some speculation is that it's not obviously just an asteroidal body, but some sort of a remnant of an intellectual, you know, some civilization. I don't know if that's true, but there's so many scientists, Frank and Keith, that are talking about what's so unusual about it. You're right. There is a spacecraft that hopefully can catch up to it. This new propulsion system, I wonder what they're going to find. But they're also talking about the problematic thing with Oumuamua. What is it? That it's actually accelerating as it's moving away which is something that most objects don't do. So we'll have to see as we study more about the strangeness of Oumuamua. Yeah, the, there's a headline on uh, Space.com that says, uh, Oumuamua is still puzzling scientists five years after its yes. first appearance. So uh, clearly a, a lot of people, even in the scientific community, have some questions about right. Oumuamua. Well, it, there's another object, too, very quickly, that we should mention, too. There was another object called Borisov. And Borisov pretty much has been ID'd as a comet object from another star system. But what makes it even more perplexing is that Oumuamua has not ever been designated as a comet. Hmm. There's no coma around this. This object is extremely strange. And some say that it's reminiscent of a very much larger Millennium Falcon. But that's the stuff of what? Star Wars. Sure. 800-848-9222. Jeff is on Staten Island. Hello, Jeff. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Dr. Good morning. Sky, I, have, I yes. have a question about electromagnetic pulses. Yes. What is the latest in terms of how fearful we should be of one of these basically destroying the whole electrical grid of the world, if I'm understanding things I've read? Mm -hmm. And yeah, is yeah. there anything we can do about it? Are we working on this? And oh, Jeff, uh, it's I great that we – yeah. 
Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Finish your point, sir. No, I'm sorry. I was going to say it's great we're doing this thing with the dart and maybe, you know, steering an asteroid away from us. But from things I read, it seems we should be more fearful of the electromagnetic pulse. And are we doing anything about it? Well, you're right. And it's a very depressing subject because I know, Frank, you've had Dr. Peter Pry on here, mm -hmm. Dr. Peter Vincent mm -hmm. Pry. I've had him on my program. And if you're not sure who that is, Jeff, he's probably the smartest person in the world in my opinion, on the ill effects of EMP. Here's the bottom line. If a rogue nation, let's say, like North Korea, Iran, or anybody wanted to shoot off, let's say, a submarine off the coast of, say, New York, Los Angeles, all you would need to do is fire a Scud-type missile, as crude as that technology is, and go only 15, 20 miles, maybe 30 miles above the atmosphere with a small-yield nuclear device. You remember Hiroshima and Nagasaki were allegedly, depending on who you talk to, 11 to 15 kilotons, not megatons. That alone would just disrupt the entire power grid over a good portion of the United States. If you had a more sophisticated type of nuclear device, let's say 20, 30, maybe even 50 megatons, and detonated it high in the atmosphere, how high? Two to 300 miles above the United States, you would seriously wipe out everything that we have here as far as electronics, our phones, the little things called SCADAs that are inside all these, you know, pumps, the fuel pumps when you go to the gas station, the entire banking system. I know there's nothing, I think, that would be impervious to it. But, you know, Jeff, you bring up a rather interesting subject. We sure aren't doing enough about it. Our, you know, whole electric grid was compromised in California a number of years ago by theoretical terrorists that broke into a substation near San Jose, California. They shot it up with AK-47 rifles. And they actually terminated a good portion of the power grid. So I think we, not just EMP, but somebody getting into some of these facilities. The bottom line, we need to strengthen it. I don't know the answer how to do it. Dr. Peter Vincent Pride does, right, Frank? He's got the details. No, nobody more knowledgeable than, than him. And as I understand it, there's also – it's not just – hostile actors uh, in terms of nations or terrorists that we need to be right. cognizant of. There's an opportunity. There's a, a very real possibility of a naturally occurring EMP, right? Absolutely. And we go back to the sun. All weather comes from the sun, and all people have to look up is the 1859 Carrington event with a C, not a K. And that, even though that was the age of what? The analog Internet when we had telegraph, the powerful blast from the sun sent such an amazing CME and proton storm toward the Earth, it actually electrified and set on fire many of the telegraph lines. And there were hmm. even people who got shocked sitting at their telegraph <laughs> trying to send SOS. They got a zap of electricity. So wow. imagine how vulnerable we are today with electric cars, all kinds of things. Jeff, you bring up a good point. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Let me at least try and get one or two more calls in. Janet is in Manhattan. Hello, Janet. Oh, hi. Thank you, Dr. Cates. Um, Good morning. I'm curious about a couple of things. You mentioned before the ionosphere and solar wind and some relationship that they have with radio waves. So could you elaborate a little bit on that? First of all, what exactly is solar wind and what exactly is the ionosphere? Is it just a bunch of charged particles like electrons and protons? And what effect do those two have on radio transmission? Great questions. They're really super, Janet. Thank you. Here we go. Let's start with <laughs> the sun. You. The sun pumps out constantly this fluid as if you had a garden hose, let's say. That's a simple explanation or, or analogy. It's pushing out a stream of particles. Those are charged particles from the sun that naturally come out of the sun as it endures the fusion process. 
But what happens when a lot of those charged particles race toward the Earth and they're more energized, like you, like we were talking just before with Jeff about EMP, when the sun pumps out coronal mass ejections or flares, we get a higher density of those. In other words, much more powerful. And when they come into the Earth, the weakest points of the Earth's magnetic field are both poles. So they get sucked into the north and south. That's why you have auroras in the north and south poles. But the ionosphere is a layer of the Earth's atmosphere that has charged particles in it way above the stratosphere. In other words, aircraft can fly like commercial jets up into the stratosphere. What happens with that ionosphere, if those particles get collected inside that level of the atmosphere, they get charged up. And what happens is we can get radio interference. A lot of, quote, ham operators have a difficult time, you know, communicating when the ionosphere changes. But it's all due to the solar wind, so they're all connected it's an amazing story, and the auroras that we see are excited up and above that area of the atmosphere, too. Great questions. Steve, it is not nearly as exciting as going to Mars or even some of the interesting things that the moon is doing, but the weather can have a lot more real-world implications for us on a day-to-day basis, especially if we're talking about something like a snowstorm when you have sure. to commute to work in the early morning hours. Uh, what can we expect weather-wise? Uh, we're, we're basically a stone's throw away from the beginning of uh, the 2022-2023 winter season. How's this winter look from what you could tell? Well, great question. AccuWeather forecast at AccuWeather.com say this, that we're in for what we call the triple dip La Nina. And this is the third winter in a row that La Nina will shape the weather across the U.S. And what is it? It's climate phenomenon that occurs when the water near the equator and then the area like the Pacific, the eastern Pacific, is cooler than average. So that changes the, the location of the jet streams. And right now, Frank, as we're talking for East Coast listeners or people across America, we're hearing that a great cold wave is now hitting, what, the southeastern states moving up into the New York area. And this could be a prelude to the changes that are coming. So simply, it looks like we'll have another La Nina, which means wetter and snowier winter for 2022, 2023, At least, as I say before, all weather comes from the sun, and we're in a maximum period coming up here with Sunspot 20, Cycle 25 on the uptick. So, I don't know. It's uh, looking colder and snowier, at least that's what they're saying for this Mm. winter season. We saw four astronauts return to Earth by SpaceX after an ISS mission. Uh, I guess it was late last week, may have even been this week. Kind of when you work these hours, the days sort of blend into one another. Yes, sure. What's the significance of, uh, of, of this particular mission and the fact that this was a SpaceX-NASA partnership? Well, what they're trying to do, they're making sure that the Crew Dragon capsule gets its complete workout. And it's been very successful because, remember, this is really depressing news in my mind. Before we had the capabilities that Elon Musk and SpaceX have brought to us and other companies, there'll be the Starliner, there'll be a few others. But think about this. We had to endure Russia charging every one of our astronauts to go up to the ISS. You ready for this, folks? Each seat on that particular Soyuz cost $90 million that the Russian government got. That's out of my budget. But the truth of the matter is now it's a safer, more reliable, and an American way to get our astronauts up to the space station. Steve Cates, it's always a treat to talk with you whenever we chat. The hour just flies by. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Hear more from Steve Cates at wabcradio.com slash Dr. Sky. In the immortal words of the great Casey Kasem, keep reaching for the stars while keeping your feet 
on the ground. This is The Other Side of Midnight, an action-packed three hours coming your way. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Most of us have been in a situation before where, for some reason, a job is not working out and we choose to quit. I actually, it's very rare for me. I I have left jobs before, and it's always been a very difficult thing to do because I I have always been very attached, at least over the last 20 years or so, to all of my employers. And uh, I've only left, and it's very agonizing for me to leave because these are people that I've come to view as family in many cases, but I've only left any job over the course of the last 20 years because I had a better opportunity. And the one that I felt got me further to where I am now, which is somewhere where I hope never to leave. But most of us know what it's like to quit a job because you don't like it or because uh, if you have another opportunity or whatever the case may be. But, What if there was a situation where you actually had to pay to quit? Now, does that sound crazy? Well, maybe, but it's actually reality. It's called TRAPS, T-R-A-P, and it's an acronym. That acronym stands for Training Repayment Agreement provisions. I have to tell you, until yesterday when I read about this, I had never heard of this. The very idea of it would have struck me as incredibly unfair. But evidently, this is a practice that is much more common than I realized. And it's now under scrutiny from federal and state agencies, including the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. This is from Reuters. TRAPS, T-R-A-P-S, TRAPS require workers to reimburse their employer for training if they leave their job or in some cases are laid off before a set time. You know what I mean? On the one hand, it makes sense, right, to train someone to do a certain job takes a lot of manpower, takes a lot of money, and if they're going to leave in three weeks, should they have to pay for the cost of that re- of that training? On the other hand, it's basically paying for the privilege of quitting. Uh, a Washington State salon, it spread to other sectors, by the way. This started, uh, as far as we know, back in the 80s, but it only applied to a few high-income professions, like pilots, engineers. And that makes sense. But it has spread to other sectors. How much of the American workforce do you think has these traps now? How much? 10%. 10% of the 
of jobs in this country right now essentially force you to pay for the privilege of quitting. And um, a a Washington state salon tried to sue an esthetician for $1,900 in training fees. An Ohio roofing company required salespeople to repay $42,000 if they left before three years. It's almost like indentured servitude. I don't like it. I mean, I understand the rationale for it from the employer's perspective, but I don't like it. And um, a California plaintiff filed a lawsuit against PetSmart on behalf of groomers who were expected to repay over $5,000. So I, I get where the employers are coming from here. I've been in this position as a radio producer over the years where you spend a whole bunch of time training an intern or training a telephone talent coordinator or training an associate producer only to have them leave in a month or two. And you think to myself, why did I waste all that time and energy training you when you were going to leave in a month or two? Now, obviously, in those cases, I don't think the person was planning to leave in a month or two, but it's still irritating and it's still uh, valuable time that you've now wasted. So... I'd be curious, by the way, if whether you're a worker or whether you're an employer or whatever, wherever you fall on the organizational totem pole, if you have any experience dealing with these traps and what you think of them. 800-848-9222. They, uh, it's 800-848-9222. I can absolutely understand why traps are beneficial to companies who invest in employees, especially amidst a labor shortage. Some certifications, like a commercial driver's license, can be very valuable. But the Consumer Federation of America calls traps, quote, a form of shadow student debt that literally traps workers in jobs, even if wages are low and conditions are poor. It's interesting. You know, recently we had, I haven't heard much about this, but we had this digital suggestion box here at work. And I submitted a few suggestions. I don't think any of them were ever implemented. But one of the things that I suggested is that our radio station consider a tuition reimbursement program, meaning if you have a job here and you go to college to get an advanced degree that furthers you along in your job, then you could get reimbursed for your, you know, for, for your tuition. And I can absolutely understand if a, and there are a lot of companies that do that. And I can absolutely understand if you're paying twenty to $30,000 for someone's educational training, why you don't want them leaving in six weeks. But if you're an esthetician or a roofer or a pet groomer and you have an opportunity to do something better, should you really have to pay your job just so that you can quit? I don't think so. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. So the the, uh, CFPB, the Consumer Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, according to Reuters, is also concerned that traps – I keep wanting to say tarps because I'm in a baseball mode right now – but traps may prevent employees – who have already undergone schooling like nurses from finding better jobs. So what's next? 
legislators and other officials are considering moves to limit traps. California has already banned them for healthcare workers. Colorado has prohibited them for standard job training. What do you think? Should they be banned? In some sectors, anyway. 800-848-9222. Apparently, America is not the only country that has this practice of charging employees to quit. Sage Kavita Godre is a reporter for an Australian TV outlet by the by the name of Calkine TV, and she did a report on companies doing exactly this. According to a report by Reuters, a number of the U.S. companies are charging employees for quitting jobs after the training they impart, and this trend is becoming increasingly popular. The report highlights those employers from healthcare, trucking, retail and other industries charge exorbitant sums of money for job training after employees decide to leave the job. Many experts have pointed out that this practice is intended to reduce worker mobility. Well, actually, their sage Kavita Godre didn't really any, add anything new. She essentially just read the same Reuters article that I did and read it with an Australian accent. But I'm glad we played it because at least we got the Australian accent in there. Same information, but with an Australian accent. It makes it sound that much more official. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. We're going to talk about something called the Alaska Triangle coming up in about 15 minutes. You've heard of the Bermuda Triangle. The Alaska Triangle is pretty interesting. So we're going to talk with Mike Ricksecker. And uh, he is an expert on mysteries. He's an expert on the paranormal. And he is a a researcher, an author, a filmmaker. And he spent a great deal of time exploring the world of the Alaska Triangle. If you've not heard of the Alaska Triangle, if you're unaware of the significance of the mysterious things that occur in the Alaska Triangle, stay tuned because that's going to be a lot of fun coming up in about 15 minutes. And then in an hour from now, we're going to talk with David Pena for the AC report. He has boogie nights in Atlantic city, but he's poised to do this nationwide boogie nights tour. We're going to talk about that. And then in our uh, last hour, we're going to talk with uh, Brian Kilmeade, get a handle on what's happening uh, with uh, all the latest news of the day, including some races around the country that are tightening pretty significantly and what that may mean for the midterm elections. Let's say hello to Gino in Brooklyn. Hello, Gino. Hello, sir. I'm still in Florida. Hello. Streaming you down here. Excellent. Love it. Uh, you know, yes. These traps are ubiquitous in the law enforcement community, um, especially in California, where, you know, think about it. You're spending six, eight months in police academies. It costs them upwards of $80,000 uh, municipalities to recruit and train people. And then on graduation day, you see this in the LABD, outside the auditoriums, they have all these municipalities on in little stands trying to lure them away with bonuses to, to come to their smaller departments, which cannot afford to train people. Well, that's interesting. So what happens then if you are in one of these jur- larger jurisdictions, you get trained, and then you're lured to one of these smaller jurisdictions because of the uh, the bonus. What what do you have to pay generally? So uh, the, these jurisdictions over the last 10 years or so are slowly implementing contracts now where they're getting these people to promise, these recruits, to promise that they're going to stay there for two or three years or else pay back the 40 or 50 grand. Some of them have, some of them haven't. 
um, but it's become a tricky thing in all these municipalities across the country. Ironically, um, Ray Kelly, to combat that, because they did not have a contract in place with a lot of their new employees, and I think it was a little underhanded, but the NYPD for a long time was not releasing personnel records or verifying employment with other recruitment departments or HR departments, particularly the Port Authority, because cops were bailing for a better, higher-paying job. Interesting. So, yeah, it was a it was a low blow on his part, but he deliberately instituted that policy. Yeah, well, and, I understand uh, where he's coming on. from, though, from his perspective. Yeah. He doesn't want all these no, police officers leaving. Right? I mean, yeah, well, I totally get he, it. He could, he could foster a better environment to work in, too, though, you know? So, yeah, you no, uh, something that t- tells me that uh, a lot of the problems that uh, police police officers may have complained about were not due to uh, problems created by Ray <laughs> Kelly. I, I suspect there were other issues. Gino, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Good luck in Florida. Have fun. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Tommy, two times, is in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Frank. Um, listen, with uh, respect to the TRAPS program, I have mixed feelings um, about it. You know, training, you train me and, and have a reasonable time before I can leave. I understand that. But depending on the type of training, you know. Um, maybe various times for different types of training. I get that. That's reasonable. But if you lay me off, you go back crazy. If you think I'm going to pay anything, anything at all, you know? Um, and I hope that possibly this uh, CFPB thing can legislate enough fair um, and reasonable uh, legislation that the laws can be changed. But I, I think that it's unfair that we have something that you're going to tell me I'm laid off. I can't do it. They did that to the cops. The cops right. weren't allowed to work if they got laid off. And that's wrong. I agree with you, right? So I can understand where uh, an employer is coming from if, as I said, they put in all this time and effort training somebody, and then as soon as the training concludes, that employee says, all right, tough, I'm leaving. I can understand wanting a little bit of a reimbursement for you know for the training. But if you're laid yeah. off and you did not choose to leave, I find it really insulting and incredibly un unfair and it should be illegal to to charge someone for laying them off i i think that's really right i i used i used to be in a machinist and the problem with these trade me for like uh cnc machines and um they told me you know listen don't don't quit right away but you know stay at least six seven months something like that and we'll give you this training and i agreed to it it was a verbal agreement but i got it all right well thank you uh tommy appreciate that uh very much we're going to talk with Mike Ricksecker coming up in just about uh, coming up in about 10 minutes. You know, on the financial front, um, maybe we'll talk, talk about this tomorrow when there's more time. I am just perpetually fascinated at what's going on with credit cards and with credit card companies. I mentioned earlier in the week, and it was one of those segments where I was up against a hard break and I didn't get to do my trademark long story, which you know I like to do with long pauses in between each words in a Shatnerian manner of uh, monologuing. But um, my wife bought, you know, on our shared credit card, she bought a service that was supposed to be a one-time thing, $320. And we were of the impression that, you know, we, we used the service and it was good. And we were of the impression that if we wanted to use it again, we would just buy more credits for this particular service. And lo and behold, I am such a yutz, I don't check my credit card. They have been charging me every month since April $320. Now, on the one hand, I was really annoyed because that's, you know, it was almost $2,000. 
But on the other hand, my credit card bill is so exorbitant that the fact that I'm now going to be refunded almost $2,000, this is, it's almost like found money. And it's at a time where I could really use a $2,000 credit in that, uh, you know, in that department. But I woke up yesterday afternoon, come downstairs. The first thing my wife says to me after, you know, good morning and so forth. The first thing she says to me is, I am taking out another SoFi loan. SoFi is, uh, you know, it's a lender. And I said, oh, wh- why, are we, why are we doing that? And she said, well, he- here's what happened. See, I was almost paid off all my credit cards. And then Melky, that's one of our cats, Melky got sick. And I had to charge thousands of dollars on our credit card to take care of Melky. Because Melky has diabetes and because he's older, he is the one cat that we have that does not qualify for pet insurance. By the way, if you have a pet and you don't have pet insurance, you're making a big mistake. Because if you need to get that pet treated and there's no pet insurance, it's basically just a fast track to poverty, right? So... um, she says, uh, you know, I racked up thousands of dollars on my credit card with Melky, and I've been paying it off and everything. But next month, this was a 0% credit card, and next month, they are jacking up the interest rate. It was a promotional rate of 0% for a year or something, and next month, they're jacking up the interest rate to 20%. So I hate to take out another line of credit here, but this SoFi loan that I'm going to take out to pay off this credit card, it will only be 6%. And so we ended up in a whole credit card uh, discussion about how um, unfair some of the lending practices of the credit cards are. She said, thank God I have such good credit. I mean, I think her credit score is about 800 or so. And uh, she said, if I didn't have such good credit, I-, I don't know what other people do. They just have to deal with these uh, with these rates to borrow money. They're at the whim of these credit card companies. And I said, you know, one of the things that I give Barack Obama credit for, it was 2009 or 2010, I believe. And he signed legislation reforming the a lot of different aspects of the credit card companies, including – capping what the uh, what the credit card companies could charge, including uh, mandating better disclosure of what you're actually paying in these interest rates. But um, Rachel, uh, my wife is Rachel, Rachel said to me, these credit card companies are one of the few lenders where the rate that you have to pay is not always necessarily tied to your credit worthiness. Because this was a credit card that she was paying 0% on, and and that interest rate was going to be jacked up after a year, no matter what her credit score was. You go and get a mortgage, you go and get uh, what she did with the SoFi loan or one of these other things, It the rate that you pay really is dependent on your credit history. A lot of times that it, with credit cards, it's totally divorced from that. So um, it's interesting. Maybe we'll talk about that more uh, tomorrow. I have a feeling that if we start asking folks for credit card horror stories, uh, that uh, you will, um, you, you know, we'll ha- we'll have four hours of nothing but phone calls. But learn from my example on my American Express card, where I wasn't checking all these charges, and so there was two thousand dollars worth of charges that of services that we didn't use and didn't want. So you can bet this weekend. 
uh, when our son takes a nap, I'm going to spend some time, uh, maybe on Sunday, delving through all of my credit card purchases and seeing if there's anything other, uh, anything else on there that I've been paying for that uh, that I shouldn't be. So we'll get into that. All right. Mike Ricksecker joins us next. We're going to talk about the Alaska Triangle and a whole lot more, maybe even shadow people. Very apropos for Halloween. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Moreno. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Moreno. Big Sam left Seattle in the year of 92 With George Pratt, his partner, and brother Billy, too They crossed the Yukon River and found the Bonanza Gold Below that old white mountain, just a little southeast of Nome Sam crossed the majestic mountains to the valleys far below I'll tell you, Alaska is a fascinating place. You know, actually, I, I, don't, I probably shouldn't say this, uh, but uh, I don't want to jeopardize anything. But um, in uh, two weeks, we're actually going to be airing in Alaska as well. There's a radio station in Alaska that's going to be carrying our show, which I'm excited about. Because while I've never been to Alaska, I have a lot of friends and family members that have been up there. And uh, they've described a surreal experience. And it, it just seems like a really... One of the last areas left in the United States where there's some real mystery, where there's some spirit of frontier life. And imagine my surprise when I learned of something called the Alaska Triangle. Some of you might have seen the Travel Channel show on this, the Alaska uh, Triangle But this is even more interesting than the state itself. Here to talk about that and a whole bunch of other things is Mike Ricksecker, an author, researcher, filmmaker, and uh, somebody that's been featured not only on the Travel Channel, but in a variety of other media outlets talking about Alaska's mysterious triangle. He's actually the author of a book by that very name. Mike, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me tonight, Frank. Appreciate it. Mike, uh, the pleasure is ours. A lot of folks have heard of the Bermuda Triangle, and uh, I guess what a lot of folks know about the Bermuda Triangle, at least the myth surrounding the Bermuda Triangle, is that um, it's an area where things tend to disappear. Planes tend to do odd things, ships tend to do odd things, and uh, things just sort of go off the map, quite literally, in the Bermuda Triangle. The Alaska Triangle is... A little bit less known, but as you describe it, it is one of the most enigmatic places on Earth. What exactly is the Alaska Triangle? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it is a very enigmatic place on Earth. And what's funny is, for a while, people would call the Alaska Triangle Alaska's Bermuda Triangle. You know, using the, the moniker uh, from from the Bermuda area there, and really, it does have a lot of the same type of activity where there are 
missing airplanes, missing people, a lot of strange supernatural activity, UFO sightings. Uh, there are strange things that happen with ships up there. And so uh, a lot of that same activity that we see in Bermuda, we see in Alaska. And there are several of these other triangle areas of the world that are a little bit lesser known, but are just as volatile. You write that since 1988, over 16,000 people have mysteriously gone missing uh, within the Alaska Triangle. That's remarkable. It really is. It's a very large number, especially considering how low the population is in Alaska. You know, you're, you're talking a, a state that's over 600,000 square miles in size. It's two and a half times the size of Texas, yet the population is only about the size of the city of San Francisco. Of course, it's spread out a little bit. So 16,000 is quite a lot of people, and really that's a number we've been throwing around for a couple of years now, so it's it's even more so. And Alaska even has an, an organization uh, called the Alaska Missing Persons Clearinghouse to try to help with some of these cases of missing people up there. I mean, what um, geographic area does the Alaska Triangle include? I imagine, obviously, given the title, it's a, a good chunk of Alaska, but does it include areas beyond Alaska? Is it um, mostly land? Is it land and water? What? How big of an area is the Alaska Triangle? Yeah, it's, it's land and water, and it is a very large area, about 188,000 square miles, stretching from Juneau in the south, Anchorage in the middle, and then Yukiavik, which uh, was formerly known as Barrow, at the very top. And it, the strange phenomenon does extend outside that area, doesn't you know uh, retain itself within a, a perfect triangle. We we use that term mostly out of you know reverence, I guess, for the Bermuda Triangle. And even with that, the activity stretches outside. It was a uh, a nice way to market a book in the late 1940s <laughs> because that sounds really mysterious. Ooh, a triangle. Um, but, you know, it's, it's generally around that area. What are the theories as to what may cause so much of these unexplained activities, so much of these unexplained disappearances? Yeah, there's, uh, you know, each case has its own different theory, but really, you know, what's going on there in these triangle areas is you're talking about a lot of strange electromagnetic activity. And so uh, when we talk about that, we're we're talking about, you know, the the Earth's cores is molten iron, and as it spins, it produces a magnetic field, which is what protects our planet from uh, the, the solar wind that comes from the sun. But as it passes through the Earth's mantle and crust, it interacts with a lot of different metals, minerals, water, things like this, that when it hits that and creates that interaction, it creates a lot of uh, different strange activity. And even the uh, uh, U.S. Department of the Interior has done surveys up there in Alaska and has, uh, has defined what they've called distinct magnetic characters, including what they also call uh, negative anomalies. So they're quite aware that there is strange electromagnetic activity in that area, and that is what will cause airplanes or ships or things like this uh, to have adverse uh, reactions with their uh, navigational equipment or compasses and, and things of that nature. 
Wow. Now, you alluded to the fact that uh, there have been some uh, UFO sightings and things of that nature, maybe some extraterrestrial activity. Tell us uh, tell us a little bit more about that. What have we seen in that vein in the Alaska Triangle? Yeah, one of the most famous sightings was uh, 1986, a Japanese airline, 1628. And in this particular case, uh, Captain Tarashi and his crew witnessed shadowing them this strange uh, unidentified flying craft and it uh, it shadowed them for a good 400 miles a uh, united airlines flight got into the mix on that and they had a very long conversation with the anchorage air traffic control about this uh they had gotten to the point of talking talking about scrambling some military jets and things like that uh, what's interesting is that after the fact uh you know, the the Alaska media had heard about this, and they started basically, uh, you know, pounding at the door of the FAA, wanting some answers as to what was going on. And an investigation was was launched, and they gathered all of these uh, radio conversations and the flight data and all of that. And it became this big investigation, included the FBI, the CIA. Uh, Reagan had a uh, the Reagan administration had a science team that was involved. They were very interested in all of this material that came out a bit, but uh, all of a sudden it went away very quietly. There was, um, you know, of course, a a nice little conspiracy theory behind it that the uh, CIA put the kibosh on it. Uh, But that's been the most significant sighting, but there have been many, many sightings in Alaska when it comes to UFO activity. Interesting. Now, you also uh, delve into exploring time travel a bit within the Alaska Triangle. Now, this is something that uh, a lot of folks question whether it's even theoretically possible, let alone whether we've ever seen it uh, on Earth as it is to this point. What uh, what nexus is there within the Alaska Triangle and time travel? Yeah, when it comes to time travel, and you're right, this is a uh, an area where people kind of have a hard time getting their heads around, and I understand that because, you know, have we really seen it? And I believe we have seen that in the form of time slips. I, I believe what's what's happening, uh, there, there are many people, you, you see this come out in our theoretical physics in some areas, the idea that all time, instead of being linear like a river, is actually all concurrent, past, present, future, all happening uh, at the same time, but on a different wavelength, on a, on a different frequency. And if that is true, and you have two moments in time that happen to resonate at the same frequency at the same time, then you may get a glimpse of that other point in time. So that could be some of these cases in which people are seeing uh, apparitions and paranormal activity and, and those particular, what we would call a ghost or something like, like that, turns toward the person and looks at them and interacts with them as if they are the ghost. So it's like this uh, crossing over two moments of, in time. And this is something that I actually believe that I witnessed there when I was stationed in Alaska in the United States Air Force, where we were seeing what we would call shadow activity in the basement of the Alaska Command Building. And it seemed in in those cases when we would see that activity that it was either personnel from the past or the future or maybe even ourselves that we were kind of vaguely interacting with. Interesting. So is that what first sparked your interest in the Alaska Triangle, your time in the Air Force? 
Oh, absolutely. When, when I was stationed up there, I spent three years up there in the 90s, 92 to 95. And there was a lot of strange activity that happened up there. I mean, you know, I was a young, I was a young kid. And this was, you know, the great big wild country. So I was, I was amazed, you know, seeing uh, the auroras and, uh, and having to deal with the snow and ice and, and those sorts of things. But, you know, there were always strange things that would happen. Like, uh, you know, a couple months after I was first stationed up there, there's an airplane taking off from uh, the Anchorage airport. You know, it only got about 1,500 feet in the air. And all of a sudden, the engine fell right off the airplane, landed in a supermarket parking Whoa. lot. Yeah, yeah, it was bizarre. And what's even, I mean, fortunately, uh, but still very bizarre, is nobody got hurt. You know, plane turned around, landed back at the airport. Uh, the engine landed on the back side of the parking lot where nobody was parked. And even some of the shrapnel that fell off the airplane and fell through people's roofs of their houses, uh, and it, it never touched anybody. It, they were finding shrapnel embedded in the floor of their house and, and that was it. So it was very fortunate nobody got hurt, but still a very, very bizarre incident. And people that I was talking to up there were saying, yeah, that's an only in Alaska moment. You'll, you're going to witness some of those. Mm. Uh, we're talking with Mike Ricksecker. You could check out his uh, website where he delves not only into this, but a wide variety of other mysteries at MikeRickSecker.com. That's R-I-C-K-S-E-C-K-E-R. Dot com. You know, one of the things that uh, may explain ships that go missing, airplanes that go missing, and in some ways it's a more uh, acceptable answer in a place like Alaska as opposed to Bermuda or the Caribbean is the weather. Obviously, when we think of Alaska, we think of snow, we think of icy conditions, we think of long winters and maybe uh, diminished vision when you're piloting an airplane or uh, navigating a ship. Could a lot of these missing planes and missing ships in the Alaska Triangle be explained due to poor weather or poor visibility? Oh, certainly, and in, and many are. Uh, some are found years later, and it, it's deduced uh, through the investigation that you know weather came into into play there. But then you have others in which, you know, like in 1950, a Douglas Skymaster that took off from Elmendorf Air Force Base. Uh, it was a fine, it was a perfectly fine day. And all of a sudden, somewhere as they were crossing over Alaska into Canada around the snag area, just completely disappeared. Uh, you know, their last communication, everything was perfectly normal, everything was perfectly fine. Uh, and yet it completely went missing. Now, the uh, United States. Uh, military teamed up with the Canadian military. They were running joint military exercises at the time. They took a bunch of thousands of soldiers off of that to go look for this plane. Uh, they were running a, a bunch of aerial missions to try to find it. Nothing was ever found. And what's what's bizarre about this is just a couple of weeks later, another plane went down around that same area. It was smaller. They found that immediately. There's some different theories as to what exactly happened, one of which is just before that plane went missing and just after, there are a couple of UFO sightings in the area. So some people speculate that maybe the uh, UFOs were involved in this disappearance. Mm, 
Mm. One of the really interesting aspects of your book deals with a subject that you tackle in Chapter 7. And uh, the book is, if people want to check it out, they can get it on Mike's website or on Amazon. The book's called Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. And you theorize that some of the missing airplanes that have disappeared in the Alaska Triangle might have been lost through portals and maybe that some of these planes could have been transported through these portals and taken back in time, and that could have actually become some of the Thunderbird legends of old that uh, indigenous peoples in the area and elsewhere were describing using the only kind of knowledge they had at the time. Is that just pure conjecture on that point, uh, on, on that theory or is there some evidence to support that well you know and that's a that's a great question uh the the conjecture part of that would be uh did the airplane pass through a portal that we we don't have proof of we do know that portals exist you know nasa has even talked about a portal just outside the the earth uh that they call an x point in which is basically the Earth's magnetic shield and the solar wind, that area where it hits, that actually creates a portal that opens and closes. And they're still trying to learn how that actually functions. Of course, you have the, uh, the idea of the Einstein-Rosen bridge, uh, which we commonly refer to as a, as a wormhole. So people speculate that something like the, uh, the Douglas Skymaster that went missing, that perhaps one of these X points or wormholes or portals, whatever you want to call it, uh, opened and it passed through there. Uh, the one example of that happening uh, would have been Bermuda, uh, Bermuda Triangle, Bruce Gurnan, uh, where he passed through something that he called an electronic fog that, uh, that morphed into some sort of tunnel within the clouds. And he all of a sudden, in about three minutes, traveled 100 miles. So he was either uh, projected forward in time or somehow sped up his plane. Uh, but in any case, yeah, the the idea is if it did pass through this portal, and that's what happened, and it went backwards in time, then, yeah, what would that look like to the indigenous peoples of the area? The only context that they would have at the time is some sort of a thunderous bird, uh, something very, very loud. And, you know, this is, you know, when we look at some of the, like, ancient gods and, uh, you know, other ancient creatures of lore, you know, is there some sort of real world context other than myth uh, that these things may have been? And we have to start looking at that because we keep finding, you know, more and more evidence of uh, some more, more than expected advanced technology in our ancient past that could account for, Hmm. uh, you know, some of these legends. You also point out the fact that in addition to the high electromagnetic activity in the Alaska Triangle, there have also been strange sporadic radio transmissions. Tell us about that, and what are some of the theories as to what those might be? Yeah, the the radio transmissions uh, were another one that were involved with the uh, the Douglas Skymaster. I know we keep going back to that. Sure, one. no, that's important. Uh, but there was a, but there was a lot involved with that. Yeah, um, and, and that was really strange. You know, they did pick up some um, some strange cryptic radio transmissions. 
that they could not triangulate. They couldn't figure out where exactly they were coming from. They speculated that, you know, it was coming from the, the Douglas Skymaster. And uh, again, if it wasn't, it had gone through this portal, you know, why wouldn't we be able to, you know, see or find the airplane, yet we would be hearing its transmissions? And, uh, you know, that's, that's one of those theories that, well, you know, that sound works on a different wavelength than, than light and, uh, you know, the way a portal would work and things like that. So, therefore, we may be able to hear it, you know, pass through that portal, but not be able to get to the airplane. Hmm. Uh, you also mentioned that uh, there's been a number of uh, sightings of cryptids, uh, something that uh, we've covered on this show a bit as uh, Bigfoot sightings. What have we seen in terms of uh, cryptids or Bigfoot sightings within this geographic area of the Alaska Triangle? Yeah, they have uh, quite a few legendary creatures in Alaska. Sasquatch is definitely one of them. There's one that they refer to as Harry Man, which is around the uh, Port Chatham, Port Lock area, it would be a derivative of a of a Sasquatch. Uh, there's an interesting Inuit legend of the Kushtaka, which is similar to our Wendigo legends of the Great Lakes, where it's you know a creature that lives out in the woods, lures people out there, and will do one of two things: either it will devour the person, or it will turn the person into another Kushnika, which is, again, is very similar to the Wendigo legends. Uh, there's the Lake Iliamna uh, monster, which is similar to the, the Loch Ness reports. Uh, but, you know, I, I think more credible uh, people were actually involved with, with those sightings. Uh, and then you have the, uh, the legends of giants, and that's one that really fascinated me because – uh, those legends were coming straight from uh, the Inuit lore. And with their – you had uh, Michael Kazignuk, who in the 1930s, uh, as he was nearing the end of his life, wanted to write out all of the uh, legends and history and, and lore uh, of his people. And he wrote this massive 500-page tome with all of this information, and he had a large section on giants that traversed from Siberia into the area. And some of the ways he described the stories were very, very similar to uh, stories that we have out of the Bible, out of you know that were similar to the Nephilim stories. And that was really interesting to me because of you know how are we ending up with Nephilim stories mm. in Alaska? It was something totally unexpected. Uh, no doubt about it. Absolutely. Hey, uh, before I let you go, Mike, I know you're a baseball fan as I am. Now that we're down to the final four teams, we have the Astros, the Yankees, the Padres, the Phillies. Who are you rooting for? Uh, give me a World Series prediction and give me your rooting interest in both the National League and the American <laughs> League at this point. Oh, a lot of your listeners probably aren't going to like me. I'm a Red Sox fan, so I have to root against the Yankees. Um, but, you know, I, I also don't like the Astros so much either. So I guess I'm kind of rooting for the Phillies at this point. Well, you know, it, it is interesting. I'm a Met fan, so uh, I, there, oh, okay, I, certainly, I certainly think that uh, there are more – Yankee haters in our area than uh, than you may realize. Hey, uh, gotcha. it's great talking with you, Mike. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Uh, the next time, between now and uh, Halloween, maybe we can even have a discussion about shadow people. 
That would be fantastic. All right. Mike Ricksecker, if you want to check out his books, you can go to MikeRicksecker.com. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Aretha Franklin. Did you know that Aretha Franklin was tracked for years by the FBI? We are going to get into that in uh, a little more than an hour and ten minutes. I will tell you the story of the FBI's monitoring of Aretha Franklin. Really, really wild. I mean, you think, uh, well, I don't want to spoil it now. Keep listening in an hour from now, and we'll tell you about uh, some new records that have been unearthed from the FBI's vault. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. This is The Other Side of Midnight. If you want to comment on anything we're talking about, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. As I sit here, I stand here, or sit here, as someone that is probably less likely to acquire the flu, well, maybe not literally, but at least theoretically, less likely to come down with a devastating case of influenza than I was the last time you heard my voice. Because yesterday, I got a flu shot. I know it takes a couple of days for things to kind of, uh, you know, even out to make sure that uh, the antibodies do their thing. And for years, I never got the flu shot. And uh, I think two years ago, maybe three years ago, was the first time I got it. And uh, I've now become a flu shot devotee. So now I get the flu shot every year. And uh, I haven't gotten the flu. Now, who's to say I would have gotten it if I didn't get the flu shot? But they say this year could be a particularly rough year when it comes to the flu. They say this could be a big flu comeback year. So what we did, I um, what happened yesterday is I came home and I was very tired. And I've been concerned that I've been waking up either due to an inability to stay asleep or because I have something to do in the middle of the day, and I haven't been able to, you know, I haven't been able to stay asleep. So what happens is when I drive home uh, between 5 and 6 o'clock Eastern, everyone knows that's when I'm in the car and awake. So everyone calls me during that time. So I get all kind of revved up. Right. Because these phone these phone conversations sometimes are very animated. Sometimes they're very involved. Sometimes they require a lot of intellectual depth and sometimes they're very emotionally involved. And then it's tough to go to bed right away. It's also sometimes tough to stay asleep. 
So what I did last night or yesterday when I got home is there's a bottle of melatonin. I try not to take it every day because I have some concerns about melatonin, but I really needed sleep. I I mean, I've been getting very concerned about the fact that I'm only staying asleep for three or four hours. So I said, let me take two melatonin, two. And it just so happened that uh, there was a half a glass of wine that my neighbor had given me because I had two neighbors that had the same birthday the day before that I didn't finish, and that half a glass of wine was there. I said, let me take the two melatonin with the half a glass of wine. So I'm asleep by 6.30 in the morning, and I'm counting on a nice restful sleep. There was no big need for me to get up before 2 p.m., which is when I have to kind of look after my sons to allow my wife to get some work done. And, of course, I'm asleep. Wouldn't you know it? I wake up 11 a.m. 11 a.m. Wide awake. Wide awake. And I said, all right, let me just lie here. Let me lie here and hope that I fall back asleep. And I did fall back asleep, thankfully. And I slept until about 2.30. Uh, my wife didn't wake me up. My son didn't wake me up. Slept till about 2.30. And when I woke up, though, I think because I had taken two melatonin, I was still a little drowsy. So it was very, very frustrating. I mean, I was glad I got to sleep, uh, which is not something that I've been getting, you know, a lot of. But I was glad I got to sleep, but I was a little frustrated that the melatonin caused me to be drowsy upon waking. So today, I think I'm going to try and go to sleep without any melatonin, and we'll see how that goes. So then we... uh, my son was taking a nap. Right, we were. Our plan was my wife was going to take my son and I to the fish store to purchase some wild salmon, and to I, I don't know I don't remember where else, but somewhere she got to pick up something, and then we were going to go for flu shots. But Carmine was asleep, so I stayed home with him while he slept, and uh, my wife went and picked up fish and ran her errands, and she said, "All right, if Carmine wakes up, I'll come by and pick you guys up. We'll all go for our flu shots." And then I'm going, I go outside. My wife calls me. She said, I'm going to be home in two minutes. So I go outside with Carmine. And my neighbors, they're outside all the time. I mean, it's a really a convivial block. doesn't matter the season. They're outside all the time. And they're outside all the time. And uh, one of my neighbors hands me a glass of uh, Jameson, Irish whiskey. So what am I? I got to drink the Jameson, obviously. So we go get our flu shot. And we made an appointment. And my wife thought that would make it easy for us to go in and go out. They kept us waiting there forever. It was like they'd never done this before. So those of you that think making an appointment for your flu shot is going to make the process go easier, that wasn't the case for us. Hey, those of you that are holding, I'll get to you after the top of the hour. If you want to jump on board with any portion of our conversation, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Over the course of the last two years that we've been doing this program, 
I have covered a trend which I have found pretty alarming, but uh, others have found to be cause for optimism for a wide variety of reasons. And we've also delved into what the possible causes of that might be. The trend that we've covered has been the baby bust, which is in Western civilization, including in this country, we've seen a decline in births. And I I think that is real cause for concern. Well, something interesting happened. Remote work likely contributed to a mini, mini baby boom in the United States last year. This is a reversal of a years-long decline in the birth rate. There was a, at least a little baby boom last year, and I think this is great. There was a, a paper, a working paper published by three economists this week delving into this. This is really interesting. It's also incredibly surprising. Economists predicted a crash in birth rates at the outset of the pandemic. And that led to some of the previous talk topics that we had done on this subject. Uh, We had said the birth rate was going down even before COVID. And with uh, the fact that there was a lot of uncertainty about the economy and the prevalence of birth control and all sorts of other factors, this was likely to get worse. Well, they're saying that the quick economic recovery in this country and the rise of remote work may have changed the trajectory, which I think is so interesting. The findings suggest that workplace flexibility might be one solution to the long-term issue of falling birth rates, which is a possible driver of declining economic growth seen across richer countries. This is the, according to Hans Schwant, how'd you like to go through life with a name like Hans Schwant? Imagine that. So according to Hans Schwant, a professor at Northwestern University who co-authored the paper with Martha Bailey of UCLA and Janet Curie of Princeton, it's the first recession, meaning what we just went through, It's the first recession where we actually see birth rates go up. Isn't that interesting? So the CDC released preliminary data on 2021 birth rates earlier this year, and they found a small increase, and the researchers of this new paper dug a little bit deeper. They were able to further parse new restricted-use microdata from the CDC, and look at births to U.S.-born mothers compared with births to foreign-born mothers. And this is what they found. And this is what's so fascinating. They found that the birth rate for U.S. mothers increased by 6.2% relative to the 2015-2019 trend line, and that the pandemic led to a net increase in births for U.S.-born mothers of around 46,000 children. And I guess my son Carmine was one of those 46,000 children. He was born in uh, November of last year. They also discovered that a widely publicized drop in fertility rates in 2020 
which was agonized over by the press and by demographers and others, including me, we talked about it on this program, was largely due to a sharp decline in births to foreign-born women who were blocked from entering the country. So the decline in birth rate that we were talking about a year and a half ago was due to a decline in immigrant births. Um, So between the lines here, the increase in birth rates was more pronounced for first-time mothers and college-educated women. Women with less education saw continuing declines. Those with more education saw their financial prospects soar last year and the back half of 2020 due to rising stock and housing markets, making it a good time to have a baby, at least economically. Much of that uh, cohort was able to work from home. That includes my wife. Now, here's what we're watching going forward. The researchers looked at birth data from California in 2022 and found that the uptick there has continued, suggesting that the pandemic changed the trajectory of fertility in the U.S. in the long term. So according to Hans Schwant, the pandemic the pandemic baby dividend might keep paying. So this mini baby boom may turn out to a big, be a big baby boom. Curious, where do you see this going? Do you think this uptick in births, which reverses three years of declines, is going to continue? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Additionally, do you subscribe to the same factors as the cause of this mini baby boom that these economists do? Namely, the flexibility of working from home and the quick economic recovery. Because this is beyond fascinating. This is a historical outlier. Usually, we see baby booms in times of robust economic growth. We do not generally see them when there's a recession or shortly after a recession. Yet we did now. Is it all a factor of people working from home or is there more at play here? Is this a reflection of there not being nothing good on television? 800-848-9222. Tell me your thoughts on the mini baby boom. Meantime, and we're going to get to your calls in a moment. Do you want to sound smart today? I was reading the Morning Brew newsletter, which is an interesting newsletter. And here are two words that you can use in conversation that will, A, make you appear smart, and B, have people probably not understand you, which I've never understood, right? What good is using a, a, a $50 word if nobody understands what you're saying? I mean, you, you actually want to be able to speak in a manner that people can understand you. Those words are perspicacious and fructify. I'm not sure if it's fructify or fructify. I think it's fructify. Why those words? Well, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan used them in the company's earning call on Monday. He said, unironically, quote, a a perspicacious analyst might wonder whether the talk of inflation and recession and other factors 
would fructify in slower spending growth. Can you imagine this guy getting out of bed and say, I'm going to use the words perspicacious and fructify within two sentences, within one sentence? I mean, come on, pick one. What do they mean? Well, according to Merriam-Webster, perspicacious is defined as of acute mental vision or discernment, a.k.a. keen. And fructify is, is, quote, to make fruitful or productive. See if you can slip those into an email today and let me know how they were received. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Al is in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Good morning to you, Frank. I just wanted to say that the uh, the uh, discussion you had with Mike on the uh, Alaska Triangle I felt uh, uh, I found to be very interesting, uh, and I will probably uh, definitely purchase his book in the future. Well, let me know how you like it. I I, I certainly yeah. thought it was interesting. Yeah, what I liked, you know, I've always been interested in uh, the unknown. Uh, I liked with the discussion how he t- touched on and you you know brought it up to him about time travel. I've always been interested in uh, Bigfoot, uh, the myths of Sasquatch, uh, you know Area 54, uh, Roswell. Yeah. So it, it was a very, it was a nice uh, just a good uh, interesting discussion. I had never heard about the Alaska Triangle. So I look forward to uh, reading the book in the future. Yeah, uh, neither had I, Al. I appreciate the uh, the feedback and the uh, compliments. And you, once you read the book, let us know what you think of it. 800-848-9222. I do think uh, that uh, Al was talking about Area 51, not Area 54. But we, you get what he means. We're not going to be – we're not going to be uh, – perspicacious about this. 800-848-9222. Andy is on Staten Island. Andy B., one of the fathers of our theme song. Andy B., what do you think of this baby boom? I think they should have publicized it more. Me, you know, I didn't have the baby on my mind. I had your baby on my mind. Well, thank you. Well, I'm worried about Carmine. I'm not worried about a million other people having babies, except for that one baby that could be born on the way to Mars. Ooh, that would be nice. <laughs> Maybe I should take a few girls, and on the way I get there, we have babies, and they could save me um, the last of the Mohicans, you know. That's it. My name goes away when I go. Well, I mean, what if, what if you uh, start reproducing? What if you fructify? Oh, listen to you. You're so bad. Hey, did you find the CDs of the Thanksgiving I songs? Have, I have them, Andy. I, I have not had a chance to listen. I uh, It's on my list. It's on my list. Believe me. Oh, you got to put it on. You listen, like, put a rubber band on your finger. Because this could go into me two years. If we missed the song, you know, we only got a few more weeks. You're right. So. You're right. You're right. We're, we're a stone's throw from Thanksgiving. You're exactly right. Uh, I will try to do that this Friday, actually, Andy. Okay, and I'll tell everybody I know to text you, you know, wish you happy holidays and find the Andy B. Nugget. Wonderful, Andy B. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Everything else good with you? Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm hanging in. It's, it's rough. Parkinson's disease is not a party. Mm, no, that's for sure. Uh, my Uncle Carmine uh, dealt with Parkinson's, and uh, I, it was not a party is, uh, is, is about as apt a description as I've heard. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the call and the great work that you do for our show. 800-848-9222. We are in the midst of a mini baby boom. We are also living in an era where the CEO of Bank of America 
uses the words fructify and perspicacious on a current conference call, on an earnings conference call. And uh, I'm curious if you agree with the factors that these economists cite as what has led to the baby boom. And I'm curious if you think this is going to continue. 800-848-9222. Eight open lines now if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. You'll keep uh, Kenneth from, uh, you know, losing focus on his primary job of telephone talent coordinating. Coming up in about 10 minutes, David Pena is going to be here. Looking forward to talking with him. He's a great guy. I saw David a couple of months ago when I was out in Atlantic City. He is the proprietor of Boogie Nights, which is a big kind of 70s-themed club at the Tropicana in Atlantic City. We'll ask him what's going on down there in Atlantic City and what he's doing around the country. Apparently, he's taking the He's taking Boogie Nights nationwide, so I'm very much looking forward to that. And then in about an hour, uh, not only are we going to delve into Aretha Franklin and the fact that uh, she was monitored by the FBI for many years, but um, President Biden is being sued. Well, his administration is being sued regarding some documents related to the Kennedy assassination. So we're going to get into that. And then um, Brian Kilmeade is going to join us to focus on some more of the hard news of the day, including uh, the fact that um, they're tapping into this strategic petroleum reserve again. So, hey, one issue that uh, combines a number of the issues that we've been dealing with in the last week or so, and that's immigration and space, is a story that I came across this week regarding Neil Armstrong. Uh, There was a headline in the Washington Post this week, how a knock on Neil Armstrong's door in 1969 is still reverberating. Obviously, 1969, everyone knows, is the year we went to the moon, and Neil Armstrong was obviously the linchpin of that, if not the linchpin, certainly an integral part of that. And Joe Chim and Anisha Abraham were both living in Hong Kong at the time. And during a get-together one night, Chim listened as Abraham talked about the day her family met Neil Armstrong's family. She listened as Abraham described how the encounter occurred months after he walked on the moon. She listened as Abraham described how she was a baby when her parents and grandmother, who had migrated from India to the United States, went on a road trip and found themselves passing a sign that announced the small town of Wapakoneta, Ohio, as the home of Neil Armstrong. And she listened as Abraham described the stares and whispers her mother and grandmother drew as they walked through the town in their uh, flowing dresses and how her father grew nervous when her grandmother suggested they knock on the door of Neil Armstrong's parents. To pay their respects. The family didn't know if anyone would be home. And if they were. How they might react to immigrants. Standing on their doorstep. Elsewhere in the country. We know what was going on. In the 1960s. And it was not always a pleasant situation. When it came to. uh, Welcoming people of color. Welcoming immigrants. What happened next. Is the subject of a short film. 
that Chim wrote and directed called One Small Visit. The actress had never written a screenplay before hearing that story, but it stayed with her. And in 2020, she started working on a draft. And I haven't seen the film yet, but it recently won Best Foreign Picture at the L.A. Shorts Film Festival. It's been viewed at screenings across the world, including at NASA's D.C. headquarters. It's also going to be shown at the Kennedy Center to high school students at the D.C. South Asian Film Festival and at the newly reopened National Air and Space Museum. I am looking forward to seeing it. Here is a clip of the trailer of One Small Visit. I remember now Neil Armstrong came from a small town. This is the middle of nowhere. Can we make a stop? Hello, folks. Where are you all from? Must be a long way wherever it is. We're just driving in from Delaware. Delaware. (laughs) No, where are you really from? Is this the hometown of Neil Armstrong? Sure is. His parents still live in Wapa. What are you doing? You can't just drop it on people without warning. Why not? So uh, that is a bit of the trailer of One Small Visit. It's an interesting story. I mean, you think about uh, who would go and knock on the door of Neil Armstrong's parents. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. We'll see how it goes. All right, let's check in over at our busy phones, 800-848-9222. All right, I guess the phones aren't so busy. Um well, that's just fine because it'll give um, young Kenneth an opportunity to finish this ship in a bottle that he's been working on for the last uh, last few minutes. Hey, if you want to find me on Twitter, you can do so at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O. Curious thing has happened in the last two days. Ever since I've been talking vocally about being shadow banned, they, I've noticed my tweets have started to get more response. Now, I don't know if that's because I've been retweeted by people like Andrew Yang or been having people with high Twitter accounts like John Stossel I'm not saying it's because I've been talking about being shadow banned, but this week, for the first time in a while, I'm seeing a more regular response, meaning where my tweets were, were six months ago, as opposed to what I've been seeing the last couple of months. So I think that's very interesting. We're also on Facebook as well at uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. And uh, if you like that Facebook page, you can, uh, you'll get an invitation to join our Facebook group, uh, which if you want to do that directly, you can just search Morano radio fans and haters on Facebook. Al is in Manhattan. Hello there, Al. Miss Morano, how you been? Okay. I'm doing great. Thank you. Good, good, good. Oh, uh, yeah, but as far as the birth rate, uh, you never know. It might be nature just uh, seeing a vacuum, you know. We've lost a million people. Uh, maybe it makes the fertility a little bit easier. You never know. Maybe cable rates are going up. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. On an aside, can I help you a, a little bit perhaps with some sleep advice? Yeah, go ahead. Give it to me. Yeah, the the, the melatonin is real good, and you take too much, more than 10 milligrams, you're going to get groggy. The way to do it is take it a little bit less uh, uh, quick release, but it has to contain L-theanine. It's a precursor, and it's going to make it much more effective. You'll sleep a lot better. L-theanine. It's like the and then nine, and that'll really help you. And also, I don't know if you do or do not, maybe somewhere in the future, 
Are you, uh, by any chance, using a CPAP or a BiPAP machine? A, a what? CPAP or BiPAP? Yeah. No, you, isn't that for uh, sleep apnea? Listen to me. I tell you this. If you ever get a chance, you try it out on, on, on a basis, okay, you will be astonished and amazed at how much better and more refreshed you are day to day. It's going to be a game changer. Even if you don't have sleep apnea? Believe me, you have sleep apnea, whether you know it or not, okay? If, as Rachel ever said, that you snore and the shades are going up sideways? <laughs> um, I mean, I, w- once or twice, w- but I don't usually yeah. sleep on my back. And we covered this when we did our sleeping segment uh, a couple of months ago. And usually if you sleep on your back, you tend to snore. And I don't sleep on my back. Usually I'll sleep on my side. Very important. But two, two quick, quick things to let you know. Alzheimer's people, when they're put in hyperbaric or get oxygen, they do better. And in general, most people, especially men, especially if you're above uh, your standard weight, guess what? You have apnea, whether you know it or not. And the, 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 the fact that you're getting enriched oxygen, okay, is a game changer. You, I mean, I was just in the hospital for two months, and I've had friends always telling me, get it, get it, get it, get it, nah, 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 nah. Listen, it's excellent. You just got to get a little bit used to it, get the, the one that works for you. And you're going to thank me one day. You'll say, holy hell, it's like you're 10 years younger. Kid you not, your, your body is thriving on oxygen. That's the whole thing. You've got to get it. And if you're not getting it uh, naturally enough, for whatever reasons, allergies or apnea or weight and or the power of your throat, guess what? This is giving you that great when you're upstate in the spring and you go like, God, it's great to be alive. You know why? You're getting oxygen. People that live in higher altitudes, they live longer. Believe me, it's a game changer, and you're sleep-deprived as it is. Guess what? You have no harm, no foul, China. All right? All right. Thank, thank you, Al. Appreciate it. Uh, by the way, in the, I was very interested in the Facebook group how many people continued our uh, pen discussion. And I did, li- I did make a list of some of the pens that the callers mentioned and a few others that emailers mentioned to me. And I put those in the uh, in the Facebook group. And then I happened when we were in the drugstore yesterday to get our flu shot. I obviously go over to the pens and I purchased one of these um, Sharpie S gel pens that one of the callers mentioned. And this is my first time using this. I have to tell you, I, I did not love it. It, it I, It's very difficult to write with. And when I have a pen, I am not looking for a pen that's difficult to write with. So I wasn't crazy about that. So uh, for whatever it's worth, I don't remember who it was that mentioned the Sharpie S gel pen. But, I mean, it takes a lot of effort to write with. And that is the last thing I want. I also purchased, and this was not one of the ones people mentioned, but I figured, all right, I'm getting some ballpoint pens. I'm getting this S gel pen. Let me also get a roller pen. I purchased the Uniball Vision Elite. That pen, it's a dream. It's a dream to write with. What I don't like about it is I like a pen that I can clip to my inside shirt pocket. And uh, you can't necessarily do that with the Uniball uh, Vision Elite. But as far I, I think I prefer the Rollerball pen. I don't know. Uh, like I said, I don't remember who suggested the S-Gel, but not for me. Not for me. I will not be purchasing this pen again. I'll still use the three that I bought. But uh, to me, it's just, it's it's almost, I mean, it's really a lot of effort to use this S-Gel pen. It's not, not fun at all. 
All right, 800-848-9222. David Pena is here. We're going to talk about Boogie Nights, talk about Atlantic City, and a bunch of other things in just a moment as we go live to Atlantic City straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. It is time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting cities in America, Atlantic City. And there is nobody that is more passionate about Atlantic City and a greater expert on what's right with it and what's wrong with it than David Pena, a legendary nightlife impresario and the owner of Boogie Nights at the Tropicana in Atlantic City. David, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me. No, it's great to talk with you. Thank you. You had a great show tonight. Well, thanks, David. David, last time that uh, that we spoke on the air, people may remember, you were also the uh, the proprietor of Planet Rose, a terrific uh, karaoke spot at the Tropicana. Correctly. You're no longer yeah. you're no longer the uh, owner of Planet Rose. What happened? Did they throw no, you no, out no. of there? No, no, no. We just uh, divided and conquered. I see. So it's all good. All good. Everything's amicable. Everything, everything's good. All yeah. right. Uh, so, David. And, and Atlantic City is, right now, it's, it's, it's a magic moment. Like, Boogie Nights at Tropicana has been the best, best. Well, so tell folks who may not have been to Atlantic City in a while or folks that even if they do visit Atlantic City regularly haven't been over to Boogie Nights, what exactly is Boogie Nights? I think a lot of us remember the Burt Reynolds Boogie Nights is the ultimate 70s, 80s, and 90s nightclub. And we give them the best experience they can possibly experience, uh, whether it's visual, audio. Um, Our staff is incredibly accommodating and they really you know deliver and give the experience and the escape that what when when people like us were growing up studio 54 meets disney well that's a great description and a, a very apt description would you say that it caters to a, a bit of an older crowd than the standard atlantic city dance club and you know, it, it, 
that's a great question because the truth is we actually we we deliver to the older crowd, but now their kids are turning twenty one. And my daughter actually came into my club for the first time. And uh, how'd she like it? It was amazing. We had Tiffany there, the uh, pop singer. Oh, from, uh, you know, I think we're alone now, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that's so, uh, that's terrific. Yeah. And it was me and my uh, ex-wife and my daughter, and we had a great experience. And that's what I want to, you know, sort of convey to people. Like, you know, this is an escape. It's It's a perfect place to be safe comfortable enjoy what you love and just enjoy the uh, experience tell me what's coming up uh, Atlantic City wise and Boogie Nights specifically in terms of Halloween anything fun Halloween themed absolutely yeah Uh, so we got Scream on a, a 90s night on a Thursday and then we have, you know, our Boogie Nights explosion on Saturday. And we're doing the Monster Mash, too. And so, obviously, we know the song, the Monster Mash, but what does that mean in terms of when you guys say no, you're we're, doing No, we're doing it actually in the quarter of Tropicana. And uh, what is that? Uh, it'll be uh, a Monster Mash experience. Normally, we do, like, Thriller or... Uh, Rocky Horror, but the, those kind of got played out. So we went back to the old school and did Monster Mash. So what goes on at the Monster Mash experience? Tell us about it. Uh, it will be all the characters that you hear in the songs. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Very so there'll nice. be vampires. There'll be, uh, you know, everything you hear in the song will come out. You know, one of the things that uh, I don't think gets nearly enough attention is the uh, the sequel to Monster Mash. I think it was Monster's Holiday. There were actually a couple of sequels. You had the Monster's I know, Holiday I know, I know, I know, and I know, Monster I know. Swim. I think it would be great if when you do your, your Monster Mash fest at the Tropicana that you'd at least pay a little homage to some of those sequels to Monster Mash. It, it, it will definitely be paid. You know, it'll definitely be done. Outstanding. All right. Um, hey, you are, if people just tuning, we're talking with David Pena with uh, Boogie Nights. I understand you are launching a national Boogie Nights Correct. pop-up tour. What's What exactly is that? Uh, What's happening? Thank you for bringing that up. Sure. Yes, we're actually going national. Um, we're going to do Boogie Nights either in residencies or we're going to do it as pop-ups. And so Boogie Nights is going on tour. And it will be the most incredible ultimate experience for 70s, 80s, and 90s lovers. And so where where can people go to find out uh, if Boogie Nights is coming to their town anytime soon? BoogieNightsUSA.com. BoogieNightsUSA.com. So, so uh, that should really be something. Now, you've done some work out in, uh, out in Las Vegas as well, right? Correct. Yeah, and how do you compare the nightlife experience of a place like Las Vegas versus a place like Atlantic city. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of the same thing, but you know, for Las Vegas, for me, it's been kind of one of my dreams. You know, I got married in Las Vegas, but divorced in New Jersey. 
<laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Exactly. But the, the the point being is we had the Elvis experience and, you know, there's something about Las Vegas that just has this constant energy that you gravitate towards. And that's what I want to create here in Atlantic City. And I hope for everybody that's listening in New York right now and everywhere else that they know that we're going to create that experience here in Atlantic City. Well, that's terrific. And uh, from what I understand, look, Atlantic City is always busy during the summer, even when it was at its nadir, when you had five casinos closed and it looked like the long term prospects of Atlantic City were very, um, you know, very precarious. uh, Yeah. Uh, you still had the basically the 10 to 12 weeks of summer always very busy. When it gets into the fall and the winter months, it's that's always when we that's when we kill it the most. Really? So, t- because, so yeah, because you know, and I'll I'll just I'll tell you how it how it lays out. So people go to dinner really early, and then they get dressed and they come out to the club on time in the summer it's different so that's why january through may is our best months really that's uh, that's pretty interesting hey speaking of the film boogie nights this year is actually the 25th anniversary of that picture are you doing anything to uh, commemorate the 25th anniversary of the film boogie nights you just gave me an idea Oh, wonderful. So you, you can uh, c- cut me in. Give me a royalty for Boogie Nights anniversary you, night. You, you, got, you got it. You're in. <laughs> You're in. Now, but d- I'm working on a bunch of other projects, too, in Atlantic City as well. Well, give, give us Boogie, a hint. Boogie, Boogie, Night, Boogie Nights is really what we're trying to pop up around the country. And I think that's the sweet spot. People love it. People feel comfortable. They feel safe. They enjoy the entertainment they enjoy the environment they enjoy the uh you know lights sounds visuals everything uh, we go over the top to to make people happy and you guys recently celebrated your 10 year anniversary right correct at Tropicana yeah but and... we, 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 yeah no go ahead no no we were also in uh, at resorts for 5 years too so, so we've been around for a long time I mean, realistically, nightclubs shouldn't last more than two years. We have a loyal customer following and customer base that follows us. And I, 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 I can't explain it. It's like I'm so appreciative. Whether we're talking Las Vegas or Atlantic City. And, and, and you know, I also want to tell you I'm appreciative that you – when I came back out to open Boogie Nights, allowed me on your airwaves. Oh, no, no doubt about it. I love what you're doing. I love that you stuck with Atlantic City, even when Atlantic City was having a uh, a real tough time. But um, for for uh, a play, someone that may not be a gambler, right, and they Correct. may find themselves in Atlantic City because their husband, their wife, the boyfriend, the father, uncle is a gambler or whatever the case may be, but it's just not their thing. It seems like um, entities like Boogie Nights are a great alternative to gambling for somebody that might be visiting Atlantic City but may not be Absolutely. interested in hitting the tables. Absolutely, for sure. It, it's 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 the escape spot for everybody. Yeah. 
Well, this BoogieNightsAC.com. Uh, BoogieNightsAC.com and this uh, national pop-up tour sounds pretty good. Now, I know you uh, have spent a lot of time around the New York nightlife scene. You, uh, how, how do you compare the Atlantic City nightlife scene with the New York life, nightlife scene? That's a really great question. Um, New York was a little bit tougher when I was, you know, when I first opened Planet Rose in New York. Yeah, we had like the guys from Saturday Night Live, you know, uh, Jimmy Fallon, Tracy Morgan, uh, Horatio Sands, everybody hanging out there. And so I think I felt like it it, it was like an experience that um, most people don't realize, you know, like or understand. But I felt like they they you know, we're in the groove. And so for me, I I think um, New York City is a place that I will come back to for sure. Wonderful. Well, we'll see you when you get here. Just because I grew up in New York. David, uh, best of luck, continued success with Boogie Nights, (laughs) and uh, we'll look forward to hearing more about this uh, national Boogie Nights pop-up tour. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation or anything else we've covered today, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. this show just join our facebook group uh you just uh, just go on facebook and search morano radio fans and haters that's m-o-r-a-n-o radio fans and haters and uh, we'll post the artists and the names of the songs in there each and every morning 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we're talking about let me say hello to joe in new jersey hello joe Hey, Frank, how you doing? I was right. All weekend, I was going to call you because I was in Atlantic City with the wife. Um, we spent uh, two nights at Bally's, got a really good deal. Great. Um, a couple of places, uh, I don't know if you knew about, but maybe you would be interested in checking. There's a, you just had a guy from the Trop on uh, breakfast at a diner at the Gilcrest Diner. Yeah, well, so I have gone to the Gilchrist. There's two Gilchrists in Atlantic City, two Gilchrist restaurants in Atlantic City. I've gone to both. Uh, It's great. It's, I think, one of the best breakfasts in Atlantic City. However, I am a uh, a diner fan, and I I love diners. The Gilchrist 
is not technically a diner because they only served breakfast they only served breakfast and lunch now it looks like a diner it seems like a diner they almost act like a diner but you cannot be a diner in my view if you don't serve dinner well, well point taken I, I would never think to go there though i mean even though the food was great even if it was open 24 like you know it's definitely the breakfast food was was really good what did you have um, what did you have uh, I had they had a special omelet. Uh, okay, crab. let me guess. Let me uh, guess. Wait, 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 don't say ah, it. crab, ah. crab, and, and uh, cheddar cheese omelet. Right, that's and, the special crab and spinach. It and was spinach. Delicious. Yeah, that's the that's my go to when I go there. Oh, really? With um, uh, and then, with a side of grits. Uh, I got the I got the taters, but it was uh, yeah, it was good. The service was great, very friendly. Um, uh, we, we went to the yard in Bally's uh, for, to watch the Yankee game uh, Saturday night. I don't know if you've been there. That's kind of like a, a pretty cool place. Yeah, uh, you know, it's was funny. I was just wild. We were just talking with David Pena. The last time I saw him, he, he I had he and my cousin Andrea meet me at the yard because I'd never been there before, and it replaced a place that I really enjoyed um, called Harry's Oyster House. And uh, it's right on the boardwalk. It's got a great view. So I, I sat outside and smoked uh, a nice cigar at the uh, the yard, and I liked it. I thought it was a cool place. Harry's was kind of, I, I was there two years ago, and Harry's was kind of like dark. It wasn't really like a fun place, but for, for what you like with bourbon and stuff, it was it was a cool place to yeah, go. Yeah, it was a, a different vibe, you know. Uh, it was more, um, you know, it was like a, more of an old school uh, style place, you know, kind of out of the, the 20s or 30s. The yard is definitely geared towards a, a younger, more energetic crowd. But they're both fun in their own way. I'm glad I'm glad there's something there, that's for sure. And then just real quick, we hit the land shark once for some uh, after. It was beautiful. It was one of those days we sat out, out on the oh, deck of the I land shark. That. We drank beers and uh, it had some uh, uh, you know, sandwiches, snacks. And then the uh, last thing was I sat at a table for about an hour, uh, no, in Hard Rock. And I uh, hit 250 on the blackjack table in about an hour. My wife took the green chips in her purse and said, we're leaving. And that was it. Wonderful. So you finished ahead. Yes, I love that. Uh, that uh, outstanding. I'm still smarting over my last trip to Atlantic City. Had I only um, stopped when my friends went to bed, I would have been up eight hundred dollars, and that's eight hundred dollars that I really could have used. Instead, I kept playing, and I lost all that, uh, all my winnings, and then some. So it's knowing when to quit that is integral. And if you could have a wife with you, that's always uh, that's always key in uh, making sure she quit. You quit while you're ahead. When you play the 25 tables and, you know, you say hit me with greens as you're winning, if you're fortunate enough to win, then that's where she she pockets the green chips, the 25s, and you play with what's on the table. And then once, you know, you're empty, then say I'm the same way. If I didn't have her, I would have pulled out of my pocket and <laughs> said, let's go further. But. That's yeah, it, that was, Joe. Joe uh, hey, I great. told her I was going to call you and she's going to, I'm going to play this for her. She's asleep. I'm going to play the. Uh, your uh, rewind in the morning to let her know that I called. Wonderful. Hey, so I, I'm not sure if I'm going to get there uh, next month. Hopefully I will. But uh, you've got to come to our party on New Year's Eve, Eve December 30th. So uh, mark it in your calendar, uh, New Year's Eve, Eve. Uh, we're going to have a big party in Atlantic City, and uh, hopefully I'll see you there. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. 800-848-9222. You know, speaking of gambling, this is the last thing I'll mention. Um, you know, I... I'm in this pool, and this guy, Ed, who listens to this show, I'm not going to use his last name, but he's a great guy, big listener, and he runs this um, 33 pool. And the way it works, it's really interesting. The way it works, it's totally random. 
you pay a certain amount of money at the beginning of the football season, and it's uh, it's a couple hundred dollars. And then every week you're randomly assigned some a, a football team. And the way that you win the pool is you um, you get you, your your team that you're assigned has to win with 33 points. For instance, last week, I was assigned the Steelers. So if the Steelers won their game and they had 33 points, I would have won. And so if multiple people win with 33 the uh, the same week, then you split the prize. Well, apparently this year uh, we've not had a winner for four or five weeks in a row. So for this coming weekend... The prize is something like $2,700. So right now, I I mean, I am very interested in seeing what happens uh, this year. I got to see this week. I I don't have the email in front of me, but I have to see what my team is. I'm going to tell you about it tomorrow because um, maybe it's $2,400. This is week, yeah, it's week seven. Right. So, um, no, it's twenty seven hundred dollars. So I am very interested in seeing um, what my team is, because uh, I could really use. Okay, here's my team. Week seven prize. Twenty eight hundred dollars. Twenty eight hundred dollars. So if my team for this week is the Browns. So if the Browns win with thirty three points, I'm going to win twenty eight hundred dollars. So I'm a big believer in you. You get out of the universe, what you put into it. So I am, you know, I think it's kind of silly to pray for gambling. But for those of you that want to send some positive energy my way, uh, law of attraction style, you know, hoping that good vibes come my way, root for the Browns to win with 33 points, and I will be $2,800 richer. So uh, I, I, I could really use that $2,800 this week, let me tell you. 800-848-9222. Kevin is in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Yeah, Frank, I'll send some good vibes your way uh, for that. Good Wonderful. With that. Wonderful. But uh, get, uh, getting back to Boogie Nights, let me tell you about Boogie Nights. If you're a guy, you got a girl, take it. She'll love it, and she will love you for it. If you're a guy and you don't have a girl and you want to get one, go. It's a great place, an awesome place. My wife, when we leave, she already wants to go back. She can't wait to get back there again. She bugs the heck out of me till we go back. She absolutely loves it. And we you, go often, so. No, it's a, it's a great spot. And, uh, you know, a lot of my cousins, when they go down, you know, they're a little older than the average, you know, kind of club goer in Atlantic City. That's the only place that they'll go because it's the only place where you, that you can go and actually kind of see adults, not, you know, not yes. not 22-year-olds, you know? Absolutely. There are some younger crowd. That's they, true. You, you can tell it's the ones that their parents got turned them on to that type music, you know what I mean, because they really enjoy it. But it is absolutely an older crowd, and it's a funner crowd. And the cast there, the crew, whatever, they, they all dress up in costume, and they really get you into it. You know what I mean? They, they dress in that, that, you know, 70s-like style and all that, and they, they really get you more into it. They get you more hype. So it, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Uh, no doubt about it. Thank you, Kevin. 800-848-9222. After the top of the hour, 
We are going to talk about this uh, incredible story regarding Aretha Franklin and the FBI. We're going to talk about the Kennedy assassination. If there's time, I want to talk about what's happening in Los Angeles in terms of the fallout from the uh, leaked audio of this uh, city council president that's been forced to resign. We're going to get into that and uh, a whole bunch of other things. Um, Matt Blaze is here as well with Kenneth and uh, Alex Barnard. They're getting ready for their post-show podcast, The uh, the Less Interesting Side of Midnight Without Frank Morano. Uh, now, Matt Blaze, I, I see you guys record this each and every day after the show, and you guys were waiting for approval for it to be posted. I, I felt like I heard you say that you were going to get that approval. What happened there? What's going on? Yeah, it's still a work in progress. We are waiting for a couple different things to happen, but hopefully uh, by next week they will be uh, posted online. The ones that we're doing now are just dry runs, as we like to say. Now, I think that's, you know, that's great. But why wouldn't you, if you're doing this, and I see the effort that you're putting into it, and I can't help but think that if any of the three of you were to put any similar amount of effort into our actual show, that maybe our show would be in a better place. But why don't you guys, until it gets uh, podcast approved to go on the website and in the podcast sphere, why don't you guys just live stream it on Facebook Live or something and then post the video in our Facebook group? I bet you a lot of the listeners that follow the show closely, they'd be into it. Well, we're not taking video. And the audio quality on a live stream Facebook Live would not be that great if we just put a camera, a phone camera, and just us in the room. But the three of you are all pretty close to one another. I see you guys in there. Yeah, but it's still not quality. And we also have – there is an intro that we play. And we – I'm more of a perfection. I want it to be – just as I as perfect as possible, and I, and the live stream Facebook thing is not going to be that perfect. And how so, close are you coming to? Uh, as well, I, as look, possible? I have to make sure Alex and and Kenneth are up to par, and that's why we keep doing these dry runs as I give them notes every day of what they did wrong. Oh yeah, yeah. you need to be up to par. Yeah. Well, so are these notes helpful, Kenneth? That Matt Blaze has been giving you? Uh, they're they're about as good as the Spark notes. Online. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So, so that's that. So, what's the timetable? Do we think for this? Because people actually, shockingly, have been asking me about this. Uh, we are hoping next week. Next week. Next week. Oh, okay. That's uh, something yeah. to look forward to. That is something to look forward to. All right. Um, we'll get into that and uh, a whole lot more uh, in uh, in just a moment. You could find if you want to email me. By the way, you could do so. Frank at wabcradio.com. That's Frank dot m o r a n o at wabcradio.com. Remember, for those of you that are rooting for the Frankster in life, you want to be rooting for the Browns this weekend to win with thirty three points because that's. Uh, that's a, a potential big payday for me. That's better than winning the lotto. Well, maybe not better than winning the lotto, but it certainly is good. All right. And, oh, by the way, this is kind of a, a sad story. Uh, there's a story of a police vehicle that rammed another vehicle, and there's some disastrous implications. We'll get into that and a whole bunch more. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morning, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Aretha Franklin, uh, she was the queen of soul. She was somebody who, for literally decades, had an incredible impact on American popular culture, music, movies, even fashion, all influenced by Aretha Franklin. And she was somebody that was very outspoken on the issue of civil rights. Well, uh, we now know in a fascinating article by Rolling Stone that she was monitored for literally years by the FBI. A lot of folks look at what's going on with the FBI now and they say, oh, isn't it a shame what the FBI has become? The unfortunate reality here is that while there are a lot of great FBI agents that do wonderful work, the FBI has always had a history of, for lack of a better description, very shady activity, which has fed into a lot of the distrust that the FBI is now on the receiving end of. They've kind of, they're kind of reaping what they've sown for years. This goes all the way back to the J. Edgar Hoover era. And by the way, for a country and a government that loves to rename things for people that have fallen out of favor, you know what they have not done is they have not renamed the FBI building. It is still named for J. Edgar Hoover. All those agents go into a building named for J. Edgar Hoover every day. You think that doesn't play a role into uh, the kind of conduct that they that they engage in on a regular basis. Four days after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, the Atlanta field office of the FBI directed a memo to a trusted advisor of J. Edgar Hoover describing plans for a huge memorial concert at the Atlanta Brave Stadium with Aretha Franklin, Sammy Davis Jr., Marlon Brando, and the Supremes. The memo was dated April 8th, 1968, and it informed the FBI leadership that some in the group supported militant black power and most were in the forefront of various civil rights movements. Citing an unnamed source, this report said the concert by these prominent performers could create an emotional spark which could ignite racial disturbance in Atlanta. The concert never took place. But the memo, which was to a very close aide of J. Edgar Hoover, is part of a Aretha Franklin's 270-page FBI file, which was released last month, four years after her death at the age of uh, 76. So this file which was previously reported on by Rolling Stone, reveals that the FBI monitored the Queen of Soul and gospel music for years, collecting intelligence from sources on her involvement in the civil rights movement and what it suspected were her links to Black Panthers, communists, and those that the FBI deemed black extremists. Aretha Franklin's name appears in documents concerning possible racial violence, 
the communist infiltration of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and an extremist matter involving the Black Panther Party, which wanted to enlist her. So it's interesting. The file reflects an era when the FBI spied not only on civil rights leaders, not only on political organizers and suspected communists, but also on popular black entertainers involved in civil rights activism, like the singer Harry Belafonte and the satirist Dick Gregory, who were also under FBI scrutiny. Roland Martin is a commentator on MSNBC. He talked about Aretha Franklin being monitored by the FBI. One thing that President Joe Biden should do, President Joe Biden should use his power and completely declassify and release unredacted FBI documents on every single African-American who was being followed, uh, who was being trailed, who was being wiretapped uh, by the FBI through the whole COINTELPRO period, because they are still uh, hiding information about how African-Americans are being tracked uh, by this government. We were being spied on by our own government, and that was was wrong then, it's wrong now, and we should have the information to know who these folks were. I I really tend to agree with uh, Roland Martin there, and uh, I don't generally agree with Roland Martin, but my view of the Aretha Franklin situation is the same of my view of the uh, the FBI investigation into Donald Trump's campaign and Russia collusion, which is that sunshine is the best disinfectant, and the American people have a right to know that who their government was spying on and on what basis. Beverly Gage is a professor of history and American studies at Yale and the author of a forthcoming biography. Maybe we'll try and get her on this show. It's all about J. Edgar Hoover. And uh, she said, picking up in 1967 and 1968 through the early 70s, the FBI was keeping the files on almost every major black figure and particularly anyone who seemed to be or was suspected of being involved in civil rights, or black politics. So uh, this, to me, is very telling about the mentality of the FBI in that era. And Franklin was not only a very popular performer steeped in civil rights activism, she gave voice to the struggle for civil rights and for women's equality. Songs like Respect, songs like Think, and uh, her father... Both she and her father, who was a reverend, were both very close to Martin Luther King. And we know that uh, Martin Luther King was a frequent source of FBI surveillance. So if you want to comment on this, I find it pretty interesting. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. It is interesting, the narrative that the people that write history put a spin on history, right? Um, This has happened with Watergate. It's happened with the JFK assassination, which we're going to talk about in a second. It's happened with the Bay of Pigs. Kind of whoever wins gets to write their version of history, or not even whoever wins. Whoever gets to tell the story gets to tell their version of history. That's why I am very um, interested in, I was not going to listen to the um, post-show podcast, the, the less interesting side of Midnight, but I am curious how that particular podcast handles those giant gaps of dead air between the time that I call for an audio cut and the time it gets, you know, it gets played. I mean, again, there's a lot of time to go 
up and down the dial and st- still come back and the audio cut still hasn't begun. But I do wonder how the commentators that are responsible for the less interesting side of Midnight are going to be handling those because they tell the story, right? Now, again, I, I do wish I got to fire off this audio on my own, but uh, I think that, uh, that that might be in the cards in the future. I'm told that there are some 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 improvements coming to the studio that would allow me to fire off those audio cuts on my own. So I'm not beholden to, you know, the whims of the, the post-show podcast crew. That is addressed, actually. It's funny that it you is. mentioned that. Great. Yes, it Wonderful. is. Wonderful. I am looking forward to, uh, to hearing that. Don't spoil it. We'll let people listen to it once it's, uh, it's posted. Now, um, speaking of the John F. Kennedy situation, we'll take your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. open lines if you want to comment. A nonprofit that curates an online collection of John F. Kennedy's assassination records, is suing President Biden and the National Archives, uh, as of yesterday, to demand the release of all remaining materials on President Kennedy's killing. The Mary Farrell Foundation, or Mary Farrell Foundation, and two of its members filed a lawsuit in Northern California federal trial court asking a judge to throw out President Biden's order last year to postpone the release of these records related to this John F. Kennedy assassination. I'm really rooting for them here uh, because, to me, I can't understand why 60 years later we are still shielding all of these relevant documents. Now, I don't think that there's some sort of smoking gun in one of these documents that says, oh, the real killer of President Kennedy was John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. No, I don't think that's the case. But I do think there's a lot of value to the public and to history in knowing what's in these documents. So clearly, because Trump did the same thing. He said he was going to declassify all these documents, and then he kicked the can down the road on a whole bunch of them. And now Biden's doing the same thing. It seems that's the one thing that Democrats and Republicans can agree upon, which is that they love to perpetuate this culture of secrecy. Even if it's 60 years ago, if it comes to protecting the national security state and not getting these secrets out there, they love to – they love to – not disclose things to the public. Now, federal officials, to their credit, have already released thousands of records related to the Kennedy assassination. But George Bush, the first, Bush 41, signed the JFK Records Act in 1992, directing agencies to identify related records and send them to the National Archives and require that all records be released by October of 2017, unless the documents pose certain risks to national defense or intelligence. Now, on the eve of that deadline, President Trump postponed the release for six months, and then he later issued an additional extension that stood in place until Biden took office. Biden does the same thing. Last October, he issues an additional extension until December 15th of this year, citing the pandemic's impact on the National Archives' ability to review the records. Please, please. They've had 30 years to prepare for the release of these records, including five years from the actual deadline. And you you want to blame the pandemic that you can't release these records? Come on. There's something fishy here. 
I, I, again, I'm not saying there's a smoking gun that's sitting in an envelope somewhere. In fact, I don't think there is. But I find it, the more they fight to keep these records from being disclosed, the more I want to see them. 800-848-9222. Mark Caputo is uh, an NBC senior national political correspondent. You could tell Alex Barnard was watching a lot of MSNBC. He was on MSNBC talking about why this Mary Farrell organization is suing over these JFK archives. Because they don't trust the CIA, the government, or the White House in this case, because the national security state for, I don't know, the past 60 years has kind of kept the full story of JFK's assassination under wraps. In 1992, Congress passed a law that said, look, release everything by 2017. Well, as you pointed out, 2017 came and went, and the records didn't get released. Trump delayed it. He then delayed it again, left it to Biden. Biden delayed it. Uh, after the Mary Farrell Foundation had gone through enough of the records and looked at everything, and they said, you know, we're not sure all this is going to be released in December. Let's sue. That's where they are. Here's a quote from the lawsuit. Uh, the unlawful postponement of assassination records by defendant President Biden deprives plaintiffs from becoming fully informed about the history surrounding the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in contravention of the express goals of the act. I am really hoping that this lawsuit is successful and that they are able to get some of these records released. What say you? Give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Speaking of President Kennedy, there is a quote from President Kennedy and that has been reverberating in my head for the last week or two, especially. But, in, it, you know, really since this war in Ukraine began, but especially over the course of the last two weeks, it is this one. And above all, while defending our own vital interests, nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. To adopt that kind of course in the nuclear age would be evidence only of the bankruptcy of our policy or of a collective death wish for the world. I think that quote is more relevant now than ever. Because right now, um, in this country, we are getting closer and closer to a nuclear confrontation with Russia. And yet, you walk around this country, and it's almost like people don't even care. They're acting, oh, let's talk about Kanye West buying parlor. Let you know, um, let's talk about um whatever gaffe um Herschel Walker made in the US Senate race. You don't get the sense, even on the so-called serious news broadcasts, that averting nuclear war is a big priority. In the in the era of the Cuban Missile Crisis, that's all people were talking about. Um, the they were talking all about how to avoid getting blown up in a nuclear holocaust. These days, at least in America, I don't get the sense that this is a priority at all. Um, I thought Rich Lowry, who you can hear regularly if you listen to the Bernie and Sid show, 
Rich Lowry had a fascinating column in National Review, which um, Stewart from Forest Hills has linked to in the Facebook group. And Stewart has been really on the money with a lot of this uh, foreign policy stuff, for, uh, really for the last year or so. And uh, if you want to read that column, I think it's really well written. And I think he makes the case as to why we should be avoiding nuclear war. Because as of now, you have a situation where both sides are threatening to use nukes. Both Russia and NATO 100% understand that nukes may be used by either side and their use is never off the table. And this mutual nuclear threat is always there. Regardless of what what either side says about them. So um, both sides threatening to use nuclear weapons, not good. Not good. Uh, you have, uh, there was a headline in, um, in the Daily Mail. Biden refuses to rule out first strike use of nuclear weapons under extreme circumstances in a dramatic reversal of his campaign vow after Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And uh, I find that pretty frightening. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we're talking about. Bob is in Yonkers. Hello, Bob. Frank, I I think maybe possibly one, I don't want to release all the information, there might be people still alive who can embarrass this country tremendously. Well, so let's say, give me your worst case scenario. Who might be alive and what might happen? How about Henry Kissinger? I bet he knows what really happened. Well, so um, you think there's a document that says, all right, Kissinger knows there was a second shooter or something? I don't know if it's going to say Kissinger, but I'm sure he knows what, what took place. All right. but So let's say that's the case. Why should Henry Kissinger, 50 years, more than 50 years since he's left government service, why should he get to be immune from, um, you know, from knowing, uh, you know, from us knowing the truth? Shouldn't he have to be held to account for anything that he, and if it's not him, somebody else, may have done? Why should preventing embarrassment of former public officials trump our right to know the truth? Because many people can be destroyed politically, and um, it can really hurt the government. Yeah, I I guess, um, and I see what you're saying, Bob, and I think you may be more right than wrong. I think we, as the public, we have a right to know about this. I agree. uh, And I don't think that... um, embarrassing some people that used to be in the government, I don't think that's a good reason for keeping this information secret. And I find the uh, argument by the, and thank you for the call, Bob, I find the argument by the Biden administration that this is due to the pandemic, I find it absolutely laughable, quite frankly. Um, so that's that's where I'm coming from on this. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Now, I did want to mention a, uh, you know, sort of a sad story. The, see, and you know what kills me? I subscribe to the Daily News, okay? And you're, I'm supposed to have access to the Daily News website, the New York Daily News. And yet, whenever I try and read an article 
that I have earmarked on the Daily News, it doesn't let me read it. It, it, it pops up with a, a paywall. Um, it says, you know, it lets me, it opens for a second, and then it says, this is exclusive content reserved for our subscribers. I'm a subscriber. Let me have this access. And then I said, all right, maybe I'm not logged in. I am logged in because when I try to open the stupid article, it says log out. So it knows that I'm logged in. So it's playing this game with me where they say get local in-depth election news, $1 for six months. I'm already subscribing. And you know what? I got news for you, with the exception of only a few reporters. You got Larry McShane, who's very good. You have Richard Johnson, who's very good. One or two other people that are that are decent reporters. There's no news in the Daily News. It's I mean, it's it's the daily fluff. I mean, it's a, it's it, uh, there's some interesting articles, and that's why I keep getting it. But there's not a lot of content there, and yet I'm still one of the suckers that's subscribing. And yet I can't even I can't even read the articles that I want to read. Now, um, there was an incident a year ago um, regarding a New York State trooper and his killing of Monica Goods, an 11 year old Brooklyn girl. It's an interesting case involving New York State trooper Christopher Baldner and uh, Christopher Baldner. Uh, was, as I said, a New York state trooper who had an SUV. He had a a state police SUV that rammed the vehicle that Monica Goods was in. Um, And it, it really, it's just an incredibly sad situation. So Baldner was indicted for the killing of this 11 year year old girl through a high-speed chase. And now the Monica Goods family um, is also suing over this. And uh, I think they have a very strong case in all candor. The union representing the state troopers has launched a fundraising effort to support Christopher Baldner, who was indicted, um, you know, for, on manslaughter and murder charges. And we'll see where this goes in terms of this, uh, both the criminal case and the and the civil case. Here was Monica Good's mother in April of this year on News 12 announcing the lawsuit uh, that we're talking about here. It's been 16 months. To me, it's like every day I wake up looking for burying a child. It's not a norm. It's not. And it should never be a norm. There's no dollar amount that's going to change this whatsoever. And this is going to forever be a journey that nobody wants to be on. I just want everyone who's responsible to be held responsible. And before the interesting thing here, before Trooper Baldner was charged with murder in that case, He had rammed another vehicle the year before on the same stretch of highway. So it does raise some questions about, you know, how often state troopers are ramming vehicles that have children in them. In both cases, the initial police, um, in both cases, the initial police press releases made almost no mention of Trooper Baldner's 
actions in ramming the other vehicles. So uh, I, I do wonder if this lawsuit is going to lead to some changes in how things are done. We're going to talk to Brian Kilmeade in uh, just a second. Very quickly, though, let me say hello to Mike in North Carolina. Hello, Mike. Hey, good morning. Thanks for letting me on. Sure. Yeah, you know, I was listening to you this morning, and uh, I heard about uh, these documents with JFK, and I think that it's it's not that it's going to end any political careers. I think that it will be so shocking what actually happened and what would be revealed by these documents that it would shake this country like it's like it hasn't been shaken in over 200 years. Well, good. I want to be shaked. I want to be shocked and shaked. I, I agree with you. Th- then release those documents then, Mike. I, I just, I'm amazed. You know, I, I just, every day I wake up and I think, why does no one else care about the things that I care about? I, I, I'm concerned about nuclear war. I'm concerned about the fact that the government is uh, suppressing all these documents. And yet I watch the news and it's they cover just total nonsense. Total nonsense. Mike, thank you. We're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade in a second. He covers a little more than nonsense. Um, and uh, But first, we're going to try and give away $1,000. If you want to try to win $1,000... Um, be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, you will have an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of midnight. We're going to talk with the great Brian Kilmeade in just a moment. Uh, but first, let's try and see if we can't give away a thousand dollars, shall we? To someone to answer ten trivia questions in sixty seconds as part of the other side of midnight presents. It's the thousand dollar minute. Answer ten questions correctly in one minute, and you could win one thousand dollars. Here's your host, Frank. Ah, let us say hello to Paul from Maryland, listening from WCBM land. Hello, Paul. Hello, Frank. Paul, uh, I imagine you're a new listener to the show since we just started airing in in Baltimore recently. Is that a fair characterization? Mm, that is correct, sir. Okay, all right. So uh, let me briefly explain the rules of how this is going to work. So uh, if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, you will be $1,000 richer. Simple as that. The timer will begin after I ask you the first question. You get one wrong, you you lose. Uh, but if you get yeah. one right, we're going to move on to the next question so that we can get through all these questions quickly, okay? Yeah, I'm very nervous. But Don't be ahead, nervous. Frank. That's the key. That's what that's what throws everybody. That guy yesterday, he knew the answer, but he... he he psyched himself out. Don't be nervous. I know it's easier said yeah. than done, and I've been in your position, uh, but um, it's it's just take a second, take a deep breath, think, and answer, okay? I'm giving it my best shot. All right, Frank. there you go. That's all that we can ask. All right, 
What is Brian Kilmeade's first name? Brian. What continent is South Africa on? Africa. Every odd number has what letter in it? Think three, five, seven, nine, eleven. D. What is that? D. No, I'm sorry, Paul. There's no D in the in three or five or seven or nine. Um, so I'm going to put you on hold, Paul. But all is not lost. Uh, talk to Kenneth, and he will get your information, and we will send you something uh, something nice. All right, Brian Kilmeade is a New York Times best-selling author. By the way, the correct answer there is E. Every uh, every odd number has the letter E in it. Uh, he is a New York Times best-selling author, the co-host of Fox and Friends, a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, and the host of a, a show on the weekends on Fox News, which is just tearing it up ratings-wise. Brian, congratulations on the ratings. I saw the recent ratings. You're doing better than everybody. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're building up, uh, rebuilding primetime with Dan Bongino and Lawrence Jones. So it's a, it's a fun show to do, you know, to do something uh, totally different. And now the big news is I took off my tie on the weekends, Frank. So if you want to make that a question uh, of, of your next trivia day, does Brian Kilmeade have a tie or not have a tie I love on his Saturday show? <laughs> I love it. You've I'm just gone, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You've gotten the full Andrew Yang. I, I love it. That's great. I um. Uh, I'm sure you are just as relieved as uh, motorists around the country are that uh, President Biden has decided to once again tap into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I guess the good times are here again, Brian. Yeah, I mean, it's 15 million more barrels. Uh, It's uh, down to 1951 levels, but it's no big deal, he says. It's no big deal. We have plenty of oil there. And he's telling gas station owners again, you know, those those rich moguls, when we pull up to mobile and we go in there, we see how rich and lucrative uh, uh, and what kind of cushy lifestyle they're living because they are gouging prices and those oil companies are gouging prices. So he says, I'm telling you guys, you got to stop. There's been no proof. He launched an investigation into it. They're not. What he's done is restrict oil and gas permits. We know that he stopped pipelines the day he walked in. You know, he has, he has pr- approved less uh, offshore drilling uh, drilling permits than any president since Eisenhower. Since Eisenhower. So he is saying there's no war on fossil fuels. We want to make the transition. There is an absolute war. That's what I thought. Not only did he deliver, and I'm sure most of our listeners right now, your listeners, had, were not uh, watching at 2 in the afternoon, but I was. He could not get a sentence out. He had no, totally unfamiliar with the copy, but it was all shot to the oil and gas industry for having prices this high. Now, it's uh, a lot of people are saying this could be one of the key issues, inflation in general, but gas prices specifically, as we go into the midterm elections. Is this all political as far as you know? Is this President Biden wanting to avoid an electoral bloodbath by uh, kind of cushioning the gas prices? No, I mean, and he, and he, that's every question. And I couldn't see the reporters who it was, but it wasn't our reporters just asking. They were saying, this, what do you say to people who say this is all politics? I mean, it's a few weeks from the, a few week from the midterms, you're 20 days in, into the midterms, and you're releasing more oil and gas onto the global market to get prices down. You know, so the, the amount he is, I think, 150 million barrels, 
he's already sent out there that was supposed to be for an emergency catastrophe, a war, and he's putting it out there. Why are you doing that? Of course it's election-related, and he was insulted by the question, but other people are picking up on it. And the thing is, what I'm heartened by the American people, Democrats too, are realizing that Joe Biden's not doing well. I mean, why else is it that he is not asked in any battleground state to come do anything except behind closed doors and fundraise? But Barack Obama is. He's going to be everywhere in the last two weeks, and Joe Biden will be almost nowhere except for today. He's going to appear with Fetterman, but it's it's totally politics. And what I think, what I love too, and I'm sure this is not a main story, but keep an eye on it. Now these AGs are suing these banks for refusing to invest in fossil fuel companies, even though it would bring more money to the people who are 401ks or individual investors. They're divesting from them. And they're that, and so when you go to, you know, with the industry that you don't just say, hey, wait a second, let me get, give me a shovel. I think there's oil under here. <laughs> you have to invest heavily in, in any type of oil drilling. And if you can't get financing from a bank, you really can't do it. And now what they're doing is it all offense on, on from Blackstone and others are told just we're not drilling, we're not, it nothing to do with fossil fuels, we're not going to support any fracking. So now these AGs, 19 of them, are suing and then banning these banks from their states if they're found to be complicit. Yeah, and, you know, the the shame of that divestiture campaign in the fossil fuel companies, whether we're talking about pension funds because New Jersey's talking about moving in this direction, New York is talking about moving in that direction, or whether it's banks that are that are engaging in that, is that it really – it deprives the shareholders, which might be the pension fund, might be the banks, of a say in how those companies are run. So if they are doing the wrong thing, um, you know, it, then – uh, the best way to get those companies to change their behavior and explore, you know, clean energy yeah. technology is to have a broader investment, uh, not to not to totally divest. It really doesn't make a lot of sense. It was all the above. I, lo- I like the Trump strategy and the Bush strategy of all of the above. And I think that Obama ran on that, uh, if I remember correctly. That means, hey, you know what? Uh, if you and I want to go invest in a company that we believe is going to bring the best battery possible to the market and beat up oil and gas, go ahead. No more power to you. But who's building the charging stations and where are we getting them? And right now, the president yesterday announced his major move, $3.5 billion of our, our money. I love the way he's acting like he's coming out of uh, his pocket. But he's taking billions out of uh, taxpayer dollars to push forward a more ESG exploration and manufacturing. But right now it all exists in China. Yeah, no, it's certainly going to be very interesting. And uh, no doubt one of the key issues uh, co- going into the midterm elections Go less than 21 days until the midterm elections and uh, real clear politics is predicting that the Republicans are not only going to win the House of Representatives, which a lot of people have been predicting for a while, they're saying that the Republicans are likely, at least at this point, to gain control of the U.S. Senate. The way they have it handicapped now, they have the Republicans winning 52 seats. Uh, They have the Republicans winning in Nevada, which would be a major coup, uh, and really the dissolution of the Harry Reid machine there in North Carolina, Florida, Wisconsin. And, and even in Ohio with uh, with J.D. Vance over Tim Ryan. Do you does that jive pretty well with what you're seeing on the ground? I know you've been doing shows from places like Georgia yeah. and elsewhere. Are, do you think that the Republicans actually could win the Senate this year? Well, yeah, 
Yeah, in fact, I just got a note this morning. Herschel will be joining me Saturday night at 8. Oh. Uh, he'll probably be our lead guest. Adam Laxalt might come on, too. He's the one who's been leading the current senator, Senator Masto, uh, in Nevada. So I think that's going to go. Herschel, uh, I think he's pro- he and uh, Warnock probably aren't going to get 50%. That's how close it is, which means there'll be another runoff. Get this. <laughs> I think it'll be January 5th. So we might not know the balance of power. But I'll tell you, keep an eye on Blake Masters because this guy's got talent and he's got financing. Peter Thiel just gave him uh, zillions of dollars. And they, Mitch McConnell backed out. He said because Peter Thiel's doing it or he didn't believe in the candidate that Trump backed. So uh, so I, I think that that's a possibility. Let's break it down further. Fetterman's got a two-point lead today. The president will be there. He's released his doctor's notes. And we've always said, Frank, if you have to release your doctor's note to explain a poor performance, it's usually not going to go good, especially in our business. If I had to say, listen, I had a very bad show, but let me just read my doctor's note excusing <laughs> me. So Fetterman is going to be reading his doctor's notes. He just And by the way, he ends up being a big-time DNC donor as well as a Fetterman donor. So you do want a doctor that's willing to put money into your campaign, of course, to reduce credibility. They were all over Trump for using a military doctor to say he was fine, but we're going to use his doctor that funds his campaign to say he's fine. But we're going to see a debate on the 25th. So then you look at Pennsylvania, you've got to think positive about that. Uh, I think that Tiffany Smiley has got a real shot uh, over in Washington. So I think it's going to be an interesting, uh, interesting uh, race. They are confident that Val Demings has got a shot at Rubio and De- the Democrats. Mm. I haven't seen even a Rubio's being outspent two to one. I've not seen a poll that had her within six. So, uh, and Rubio is one of the most competent senators, Republican or Democrat, you'll ever run across. All the guy does is work. Do you think these so, polling models are still reliable? I'm about to find out. Each time they lose more and more uh, credibility. But Trafalgar, which everyone says, well, that right-wing poll, that ends up being one of the most accurate. The one that's got really on the docket is 538, the New York Times' Nate Silver, who a couple, of, who I guess a couple of cycles ago did well. Mm-hmm. He's saying 60% chance, be 65% chance Democrats hold the Senate. That was at 72%. I'm saying to myself, is this guy just going to hop on the day before the election day and go even? Because <laughs> that is so over the top. Uh, it's so agenda driven because, you know, for you and I, we look at the polls and go, OK, that was wrong. They have to go get investors and go do it again when no one's going to be subscribing to them or paying attention to them if they blow this. So let's see what closes. In the end, they, they could be agenda driven. And then in the end, they got to be right as possible. You know, this is not the only country where there are some interesting polls um, and producing some very interesting, uncertain results. I caught a little bit of your interview this week with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the former Israeli prime minister who's got a new book out and he's hoping to come back and once again be the prime minister of Israel. The Israelis are having their election in a couple of weeks. I think this is the fifth set of uh, countrywide elections they've had within the last uh, two and a half years. Do you think Netanyahu's going to get enough? seats to be able to come back as prime minister again will he secure a majority man he's so confident and i was talking to him i did on television on fox and friends yesterday talked to him in the break a little bit uh you know and i you know we we, they break up uh they in britain can't hold it can't hold the government together but he feels as though letting the other i my my opinion letting this other guy run his government for this time and seeing how ineffective uh they are also, I think it's so embarrassing, and I asked him this too, that they're not supporting Ukraine. 
they're staying out of it, not even supporting missile defense, maybe a few MREs. I think that's criminal. There's a, they're a democracy. Get, they get it together. What would they ever permit their land to be invaded and not to support them? I think just think it's bad. Uh, but Netanyahu feels feel always going to do it, be able to hold it. And I think he feels that people miss him. So I think he's going to get I think he's going to get back there. The book is excellent. What he does in the book, if anyone anyone who covers Israel, you need to know the history. I remember when I first started Fox, I got VHS tapes out of the library that just said the birth of Israel and what happened in 1970 and what happened in 1930 and what you know, what did Truman do? What did FDR not do? Why did the Britons turn around on the Balfour Declaration? And then it turns out his dad did a lot of lobbying in our country in the 1930s in order to get Republicans and Democrats to pressure each other to recognize Israel and to think that his brother was a war hero. He was a war hero and then would emerge as a, a prime minister. So it's a really good book to give you some competence on the issue and why the, he believes the pa- uh, Palestinian cause is all synthetic and how it was just roused up uh, from basically an Arab creation. But it gives you some some t- context, and I believe he's going to be joining me on One Nation, too. Mm. Oh, wow. That's uh, an action-packed show this weekend. Tuesday, we saw after nine hours of uh, jury deliberations, a federal jury acquitted Russian policy researcher Igor Danchenko on four felony false statement charges as part of the Durham probe of misinformation that triggered the FBI probe of uh, former President Trump. This is the Second high-profile acquittal that we've seen as it relates to all this. What does this mean for the future of the Durham investigation, if anything? Well, I got to get Bill Barr on and because he's the one who hired Durham. The only thing I would say is this. Convictions, I know what it's about. You go to law school, you got to get a conviction uh, or exoneration, and that decides wins or losses. I actually don't look at it that way. For the longest time, we read stuff, we get perspective, we get sources, and we say, this is where the story is. This is the Russia hoax, or this is the Russia investigation. This is the reason that uh, the proof that Donald Trump colluded with uh, Vladimir Putin, and here's the proof he didn't. So we go back and forth, and so many people listening to us right now are working their second job. They don't have time to delve into the Mueller report. But if you just look at some of the revelations that have emerged from this trial— about Sussman pretending to be just a concerned citizen and dropping off false documents to the FBI. Uh, And yet he was manufacturing those documents. And then you find out that the Steele dossier, not only was it not true, but used to follow people and get warrants to screw up uh, lives of Carter Page and Papadopoulos and Manafort and, and Trump, he contends. But they knew it was not true to the point where we found out in that trial that the FBI said, hey, guys, I'm trying to use the dossier to prove to a FISA court and others and to media members that uh, that it's true and that Trump is corrupt. But I can't prove it. Uh, Christopher Steele, you wrote it. Can you prove it? He goes, no. They go, Chris, if we give you a million dollars, would you prove it? I'll pay a million dollars. Prove it. Take as much time as you need. He says, I can't. And then they said, OK, why? Well, the guy that gave it to me, uh, he can't. Who's the guy that gave it to you? Dushenko, where did he get it? He got it from Russian news reports and of somebody who knew somebody in Russia that told him this took place. So he couldn't even tell us the source. And guess what? Dushenko was outraged that Christopher Steele took his what he said was hearsay and put it into the Steele mm. dossier. Dushenko said, wait a second. I didn't tell you this was authenticated. Steele says, yeah, it's authenticated. Who hired Christopher Steele? Hillary Clinton. Excuse me. So, okay, Dushenko wasn't convicted of lying to the FBI four times because the FBI 
came and, and fought it uh, with mind-boggling. They fought Durham. They, oh, don't worry. He lied to us. We don't worry about it. So FBI says, you can lie to me. I can't lie to him. You can't lie to the FBI. But Dushenko could. And the FBI went to bat for Dushenko. So all I can tell you is what I just told you is under oath. So it's all true. And when, when, when Trump says it was a hoax, he is actually not exaggerating. It was a total hoax. And when I tell you the country was hurt for two and a half years and we wasted billions, millions of dollars doing it and so many lives from Flynn to Manafort were screwed up for no reason, destroyed for no reason, that is not a rumor. That's not my opinion. We know that's fact. And he's going to write his complete report if they let him. Biden might stop him from finishing off and writing what his conclusions are, which, of course, they would have to uh, they would have to take the White House back to get that going again. Finally, um, baseball playoffs. We're down to the final four teams. You got the Padres and Phillies tied at one in the National League Championship Series. Yankees lost their first game uh, against the Astros yesterday. A kind of a disappointing finish to that game. Where do you see the World Series going at this point, Brian? I mean, uh, a betting person, uh, a betting person would would uh, believe the Astros are going to get through, and I think the Padres are getting through. But what I want to happen is the Yankees live up to their potential and beat the Astros. And what they showed me early with that unbelievable catch by Aaron Judge mm. and the home run by Harrison Bader, which, by the way, give give Brian Cashman credit. I mean, they said, why'd you get a hurt center fielder? Uh, you know, he wasn't able to contribute. And he gave up Jordan Montgomery. Now you know. This guy's an engine. This guy is going to be great for a long time and is from the area, so he wants to be here. But... What I and, and listen, I don't want to insult all these baseball guys listening, but if 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 you have a pitcher in such rhythm that he struck out seven straight guys, can you at least step out of the box, screw mm. up his rhythm, go in there, change your batting <laughs> glove, tell your bats cracked, just slow it down a little? I mean, why are we allowing the the Astros? Uh, why are we allowing these guys to get into a rhythm and just go down? So the Yankees win by a final score of four to two. They were up one nothing. Uh, give up four straight runs and score a little bit late. So uh, and uh, the Padres took game one uh, eight to five against the Phillies. Who Joe Girardi still can't believe that that's the same team he left. So that series tied at one apiece. Let's see the Yankees get one game here, and then there's really the first time I remember them taking on anybody feeling like the underdog. But uh, after sweeping the Mariners in three straight games uh, and having all this rest and the Yankees having to go five with the Guardians, they're definitely the underdog. Let's see if they can relax and get one. They get one, all the pressure's back on Houston. Brian Kilmeade, it is always a treat to chat with you. I'll see you soon, my friend. And don't forget December 2nd. I'm there, man. December 2nd, Newark, New Jersey. Uh, How do people get get tickets? Tell people. Oh, yeah, just go to briankilmeade.com. Click on the tickets. Uh, and then we'll see you on Friday night in Newark, New Jersey. It's going to be a lot of Fox surprises. Frank's going to be there. We're going to get right. him on stage to right. be able to take your questions and talk about 1776 history, not 1619. That's right. We're going to do a live version of the $1,000 Minute in person at, uh, on December 2nd. Brian Kilmeade, check him out at Fox & Friends and on the radio. Uh, th- we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. You can be heard for 15 seconds by dialing 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, speaking of sports, as we were doing with Brian Kilmeade, today's a big day if you're a sports fan. Today is a sports equinox uh, for the only the 27th time in history. All four North American pro sports leagues, baseball, football, hockey, basketball, they're all going to be in action today. So if you're a sports fan, today is your day. If you're a fan of talk radio, it's uh, your day always at this time because you get to comment for 15 seconds. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Joe in Ronkonkoma. I want to wish a very special 80th birthday to my mother-in-law, Mary, in East Northport. Happy birthday. Let's go, Yankees. Mike in Lake George. Shout out to Giuseppe in Ronkonkoma. Frank, uh, I got a buddy of mine. I was telling Kent, uh, he retired from Caesars Atlantic City, 41 years. Tony, I call him Scooter. You can't even text him when the Yankees are playing because he, he'll jump out of his socks. <laughs> but anyway, good luck to the pinstripers. Good luck to the pinstripers in Houston. Neil. No matter what happens with the sports equinox, the Mets still suck. <laughs> and finally, Fred. Hey, Fred, my, my friend Sal. My friend Sal. He kept going to work at Ronzoni every day, even though he didn't work there. Fred, uh, on that note, Frank Morano, good day. <laughs> 